All right, we are live. Gene, thank you very much for joining me. For anyone who is not familiar with Gene, uh, we had a spirited discussion a few months back, and Gene, uh, in terms of his former career, was a, a chief economist for the New York Stock Exchange. He was also longtime editor, um, economics editor at Barron's Magazine, and currently hosts the uh, Soho debates at the Soho Forum, where he pits, I guess, two uh, strongly opinionated people on, uh, you know, socially relevant topics and gets them to uh, debate in front of a live audience to determine uh, a winner and a loser. And on, Gene, and on, welcome back. And on six of those occasions, the strongly opinionated person was myself, <laughs> as you know, because the, the, uh, the initial interview that you and I had was sparked by my debate with Richard Wolf on socialism. And you probably helped put it up there on YouTube views. It's now uh, almost at a million YouTube views, my debate with Richard Wolf. And amazingly, uh, what I also will often enclose when I announce the, the milestones is that Richard Wolf did a 10 minute uh, uh, discussion a week later about our debate. And this kind of a really uh, funny uh, pa parody of what actually took place between us. But that aside, yeah, that's what we do. And so I am a debater and that's why I uh, I've, I've done uh, this old forum because I get a chance to debate. I get a chance to witness other people debating. And so I think we're going to have a little bit of a debate this afternoon, John. Right. With and I'll, I'll just say about that, for people that aren't familiar with the Soho debates, definitely worth checking out. Uh, they're all up. Most of them are up on YouTube. They're, uh, they're great debates. Yeah, we had one last week that was just released yes, uh, uh, yesterday, uh, which is uh, that uh, about uh, the racism in the criminal justice system. Radley Balco, who may, maybe some have heard of, defended the resolution. There was overwhelming evidence that the criminal justice system is racist. And uh, taking the negatives route was uh, Raphael Manquel of the Manhattan Institute. And it was one of the liveliest debates we've had, uh, pretty well attended on live stream. I do recommend it. And who, who won? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, what, the way we're doing it with live stream is that we let live streamers vote as well. So we're, so we're holding it open for people to watch it and then vote. Uh, although, of course, you have to vote both times initially. Another number of people voted initially, and then they're going to watch it and vote again. And so uh, tomorrow at noon, we'll announce uh, the winner. Uh, right. Tomorrow being, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, Tuesday. Right. Um, so a little bit of context for this discussion. Yeah. There's, there's two pieces of context. Yeah. The first is um, with all the intervention that's gone on in the last three, four months, and of course, with the type of intervention that's characterized, uh, you know, the, the fiat central banking system that's existed for the last hundred plus years, yeah. a lot of people that are trying to understand the the implications of that intervention, CPI and inflation are one of the things that they look at because, of course, the debasement of um, the money in a given economy is something that investors and consumers alike, uh, that it's very relevant info to them. And after the financial crisis in 2008, and again, as a result of the COVID crisis, we've seen a level of intervention, uh, whether it be quote unquote money printing, whether it be quantitative easing, uh, from central banks all over the world on a scale that we have not seen before. And one of the burning questions in a lot of people's minds is, when will we see this show up in inflation? And there's a number of different dynamics at work that might delay that process. But I think many of us are wondering, 
when, where, and how will we see this show up? Well, I, I can answer that question. Don't answer yet, Gene. Don't answer yet. I'm giving one more, one more piece of context here. So this is a question we all want to know. And critical to that, the answer of that question is how inflation is calculated and how it's represented and how that calculation is used by governments as a policy instrument and how it may be used to allow them to get away with more intervention that they may otherwise would. Now, that may be a bit of a loaded thing, and I'll get you to address on that later. The second piece of context for this is that I was being interviewed by a, a podcast a few months ago, and I, uh, I referenced uh, inflation and the CPI calculation in an erroneous way. I made a mistake by insinuating that something was left out of it when it actually was not. College tuition, college tuition. <laughs> right. And, uh, and that was, uh, I think I just lacked discipline there because what I was trying to communicate was that it, it, the CPI wasn't a perfectly reliable measure of inflation. But what I did instead was I misquoted, you know, I misrepresented the calculation. And you, in fact, emailed me and corrected my thinking on I, that, which I very much appreciate. I, I pounced. I pounced <laughs> on you, John, mercilessly. So, but, so but, but, wait, wait, hold on, Gene, hold on, Gene, hold on. All that being said, that's why I wanted to have this discussion today, because I think so many of us in the space are looking at that, but it's a very misunderstood and poorly understood aspect of this whole economic and financial picture that we're trying to understand you claim to be an expert on the CPI and having looked at it before, and so I wanted to have you on today. Gene, thank you very much. Go ahead. Okay, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, look, we probably, uh, as we were uh, establishing before uh, we went on the air, John, uh, it's uh, probably of interest to Bitcoin users to talk about a world in which uh, Bitcoin is money and in which we do not have government running uh, most of our statistics, and I opined, and we can pursue that a bit later, that there would probably be an interest in price indexes, even in a free market. Uh, there's obviously lots of reasons for price indexes in this market, government dominated, but we can get to why there might be interest in a free market as well. Uh, because of course, prices are going to change uh, under a Bitcoin regime, uh, they're going to go south. But I want to address the, the, the primary premise of, of, the, of the context that you laid out. We are already, we have already been seeing the effect of the monetary intervention in prices and the reason in the price indexes. And the reason for that is that uh, since uh, the early 1990s, uh, we have had forces in this, uh, in the in the national and global economy, that would have meant, probably just to pick a number, a five to ten percent decline in prices every couple of years, uh, maybe a four to five percent every year. So we have had decline. Are, are those forces technological advancements that are causing deflation? Is that what uh, you mean? A whole combination of forces, which I'll get to in a moment. But I, I just okay. want to summarize. The point then and say then that if you work with my assumption, let's say 5% down, and if the price indexes are showing 1.5% up, then that's, that's a 6.5% inflation every year. So, uh, so I'm just saying in terms of the math, uh, if you're expecting 5% down every year and you get 1.5% up, then you get plenty of price inflation. But then getting to your question about what were those forces? Why do I choose the early 90s? Well, I take that from the end of the Cold War, uh, which opened up 
uh, huge uh, cheap labor markets, uh, the end of the Cold War, which accelerated greatly uh, global competition. Uh, that's so I date that from the early 90s in that sense. In addition, uh, there have been, for whatever reason, not a, a technological probably, uh, a great deal of discounting. So many of the great fortunes are being made, have been made by discounting, by cutting prices. Now, that, that was the Walmart effect uh, prior to uh, the early 90s, and the Walmart effect was huge. And by the way, it was missed by the CPI, which I can explain. Uh, the Walmart effect being the enormous discounting of brands that made Sam Walmart a billionaire. And then, of course, obviously, the Bezos effect, which I'll call it, uh, the other kind of price discounting. That, that, I guess, arises from technology. And so, uh, given those forces, again, the the deflation, uh, the falling, I'm waving my arm to get the light back on. There we go. Uh, the, uh, uh, the global forces, the technological forces, are uh, uh, usually uh, price deflationary. I hate to use the word deflation without using the word price because deflation really has another meaning, price deflationary. So we've seen plenty of inflation. Well, let's, let's make that distinction at the outset, or I'll ask you if it's a necessary distinction to make. Should we be dis making a distinction between monetary inflation and price inflation? Is oh, that course. Oh, important course. for this argument? Yes, yes. Can, can you explain the difference and why it's important? Yeah, well, it's a, well, I think it's important to any Austrian, anybody who wants to think about Bitcoin, anybody in your audience. Um, and of course, I, I, I just want to, of course, when I talk about the 6.5% inflation, I guess to clarify, obviously, all of that monetary expansion that was on, that you were correctly said was hugely, so it was so huge, it was unprecedented. We had monetary expansion in the, since World War II that was pretty big at times, but this was unprecedented. Uh, as you say, but that brought then that lifted a five percent down to one and a half percent up. But then uh, now to your other question about uh, deflation versus price deflation. Uh, of course, uh, what used to be the case was a hundred years ago the dictionaries defined it defined deflation and inflation as a rather an increase in the in the supply of money or a decrease. Uh, and so I think that's useful to hold on to uh, that when the money when the when the when money contracts uh, which does happen in uh, under uh, a central bank regime uh, or government dominated regime money can contract uh, and so that's something to deal with and we should have that concept in place that's deflation and then inflation is that money increasing some some might want to put a fine point on it and talk about inflation money increasing faster than goods but do we just want to hold on to the money supply deflating or inflating and so that's why whenever I wrote about uh, price inflation uh, in my column, whenever I talk about it, I, I'm willing to use the words inflation and deflation, but always with that extra modifier price. Price inflation, price deflation, and obviously in a, in a Bitcoin regime, we would have essentially a flat money supply, neither deflation nor inflation. So all of that is worth clarifying. In a regime of gold, we'd have mild inflation, a mildly slowly increasing money supply under a regime of gold. But under, as I say, under the regime of the Federal Reserve and the central banks, we do have at times uh, deflation, outright deflation, contraction of the money supply. 
And is it fair to say that in, you mentioned Bitcoin being a flat, you know, ultimately when it's fully issued, it would be a flat money supply. Is it fair to say that that would cause price deflation because of there's no inflation in, in the, in the money supply itself and vice versa. If there's inflation in the money supply, you'll see price inflation in goods and services. Right. Or you you should. Well, yes. Although, although of course uh, the, the, uh, the first part of what you said about obviously Bitcoin being flat, uh, in, in terms of supply, but goods and services expanding, uh, then of course you're going to get uh, a decline in prices. Although, and also to put it, it's important to stress a decline in one of the most important prices of all to most of us: a decline in wages and salaries in nominal terms. Also, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, not just uh, what the prices that business uh, uh, charges, but the prices that it pays for its labor will decline over time. Uh, and uh, but then with respect to the other side of it, when you talked about an, an inflationary money supply, there I guess you have to introduce the idea that it's approximately a race between the money supply and goods and services. If the money supply is expanding one to two percent, but goods and services are expanding seven percent, then you will still get uh, price uh, deflation. Of course, right. so it's a matter of simple math in terms of the concept. Of course, empirically it works out more in a more complicated fashion. Yeah. Right. Um, I I can already tell we're going to be hopping around a lot here, Gene, but I would expect no less between you and I. So let me ask you this question, because I think it's highly relevant to what's going on now and the question that arises in a lot of people's minds. You touched on it a moment ago, but I think there's probably more to uncover there. What we've seen all this monetary inflation over the last four months, let's say, you know, the expansion of uh, of money. Um, What are why don't we see commensurate uh, price inflation over the same or a similar period? What are the forces that are keeping price inflation in check when monetary inflation is so robust? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good question in this sense, because I've said that we basically had uh, the, the baseline is negative 5% every year. And I've said the baseline of negative 5% every year, just to choose a, a sort of a, a number in principle, uh, has been has been prevailing for the last 25 years. But but then you fairly ask, well, yes, but we had, of course, monetary inflation in the 90s and in the early aughts and in the teens. We had monetary inflation then. But then you say, hey, look, now we're having a ratcheting up, an acceleration. So so shouldn't we see some difference in, uh, in conventionally measured price inflation? And, and we aren't. And there uh, I would uh, explain it by saying that uh, that we have uh, slack labor markets. That that uh, that I, uh, it, it does appear, and certainly based upon the U.S. experience of the of the uh, that started in the early 1970s, that uh, that in order for a price inflation to start and start snowballing and building on itself, uh, you need a tight labor market. So uh, it, it's now obviously when you have a, a double-digit unemployment rate, you have the uh, arguably uh, a, um, a a slack. Uh, oversupply of labor, and that can that will dampen inflation because again, uh, the most important price of all, in a sense, really is the price of labor. And so that's what I would that's how I would explain that. Although then, of course, somebody might ask me, well, what happens if we do get back to a fairly tight labor market? What will happen then? That that's interesting to explore as well. But I would say the slack labor market is the explanation. Yeah, right. And let's put a pin in that because I think we should explore when the labor market rebounds, the effect that this will have. But just for a moment, let's pause that because I'd like to ask, to what degree 
is the global demand for dollars scooping up a lot of this excess liquidity and you know basically prohibiting it from entering the you know the market in terms of uh, chasing uh, more money chasing fewer goods you know so if 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 there's deleveraging going on if there's a lot of US dollar denominated debt um, how much is you know how much is the new dollars being created being drawn away via those processes and as a result not showing up in consumer prices well, that's interesting. I hadn't quite, that's a clear enough point. It's difficult to trace. Obviously, there are a lot of, you know, dollarized economies and a lot of, and the dollar is indeed king. I use the whole point about the dollar as, as, as an indication of what truly happens in a, in a, in a world market uh, that, uh, that we all prefer one currency. Uh, that's that, and that, and at this point, it, uh, the dollar is the default currency. Uh, but so I think that's a factor. Uh, what you just said. Uh, the other part of it is that if you look at the conventional uh, measure of uh, M1, uh, there has been uh, it, it. It connects very closely to it's, uh, to the uh, soaring savings rate. People are basically certainly I and others were not spending. Uh, because just there isn't a whole lot to spend on, and the conventionally measured uh, personal savings rate is at uh, a record high uh, uh, to beat all records, and so that money is basically showing up as M1. So, and it's basically not being spent; it's inert. So that's part of the explanation as well uh, about what's going on. But so, right. therefore, I wasn't. I'm not too surprised that we're getting essentially uh, no, uh, no, nothing in the way of measured uh, price inflation. Right. And, and on that point, you know, so the, those two variables that we just discussed and possibly as a comparison to 2008, um, what we're saying is a lot of this new money isn't basically reaching the market. Yeah. It's either being used to deleverage debt. It's being used as, for savings. Um, and in 2008, this the stimulus and the QE activities, these basically went into the banking system and had a similar result as they, they didn't go directly into, let's say, Main Street economy. And as a result, that's probably another reason why we didn't have a tremendous amount of official inflation from that period onward. This time, we have something that's materially different. This time, even though the bulk of these activities have remained, let's say, in the financial sector, mm -hmm. um, we do have a form of UBI. A lot of people have received checks this time. And so that makes the insertion point kind of on Main Street. And you would think that, it, or what do you think is the effect of money going directly to consumers? And if this is a trend that continues, and I'd like to get your opinion on whether or not you think it will, uh, what, what do you think will be the effect of getting money directly in the hands of consumers vis-a-vis -vis inflation? Okay, then you are asking me what will happen down the road. I mean, I, uh, with respect to what you call the the, uh, the UBI, the the, uh, the universal basic income, uh, and uh, I want to explain that to listeners. Make sure, John, that at every stage you're not losing people. Um, not everybody knows what that stupid UBI stands. That's what I got you here for, Gene. <laughs> and, and so, okay, so so that's the six hundred dollars that people are getting, uh, the unemployed people are getting. Uh, in terms of extra pay and boosting their pay in, in most cases to 900 plus dollars, more than small business can afford. I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's due to expire at the end of July. I mean, tragically and stupidly, maybe it's going to be renewed. It's difficult 
to imagine that uh, it will uh, be, uh, that it's permanent, that's here to stay. I don't think psychologically or in any other way, the market is banking on that. Certainly, there are, there's, I mean, clearly it's shafting uh, mostly small business, but it is shafting even uh, larger businesses that, that uh, normally that do employ a lot of people for less than 900 a week. Yeah, it's absurd that, uh, especially that small businesses have to compete with the government uh, and uh, can't uh, uh, can't pay uh, 900 uh, bucks a week to their employees. Otherwise, they'd go out of business. Uh, uh, but uh, and so that's ridiculous. But I I do think that there will be enough pushback, and there already has been from business, so that even if it's renewed for a bit, it's not here to stay. So I don't really, I, I don't really agree with this uh, the UBI argument that the UBI has arrived. Uh, we've had this ridiculous subsidy and I think it's going to pass. And it, if it survives another few months, it's essentially uh, going to be gone. Uh, and so therefore, I don't really think it's going to be a factor. But hopefully to direct, to, to address the question that you seem to be really asking, what sort of thing things return to normal, which, which is going to be a slow process, I've been looking for a recovery, but not a, anything like a V-shaped recovery. We already are recovering, by the way. Uh, the, the recession that began, I guess, officially in February, according to the, to the uh, Business Cycle Dating Committee, uh, ended um, probably last month. Uh, and, uh, and we are beginning to uh, expand. But of course, the big question is, at what point do we get, to, does the expansion reach so that we are back where we were in terms of output uh, compared to the fourth quarter of, of 2019? And I think that will be probably not until the second quarter of next year. Um, before we climb back. So it's going to be a slow climb back. And I believe that the unemployment rate is going to remain high. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, there will still be slack labor markets. Uh, and, uh, I, and, I, and with that subsidy uh, uh, um, uh, phasing out, I, I do think that, uh, that wages will climb slowly and that therefore that kind of pressure that's, that is normally required to bring about uh, an accelerating inflation will not be there. And then on top of that, I do think that, that the other disin price disinflationary forces um, that I mentioned that have brought about essentially uh, in normal in normal terms uh, a decline in prices, the disinflationary forces of cheap labor abroad, the global competition, uh, uh, Bezos, the Bezos effect, even the Walmart effect, still uh, I think will will still be there, and therefore I don't expect too much in the way of an acceleration in measured price inflation. Although again, I speak there, I speak, I say I think it's unlikely. Uh, and I'm willing to be contradicted by events, but I think there are too many forces in place that will uh, will, will prevent it. Principally, uh, to go back to the labor point, I, I think it's going to be a long time before we get back to an unemployment rate of four percent or less. Right. Yeah. So, what do you think would be a catalyst for? And maybe this is a good time to actually break into the CPI calculation. But what do you think would be a catalyst for? unacceptable levels of inflation, oh, you know, so, right. and just to put this in a historical context, you know, in throughout history, there's various examples of central banks or governments getting into tangly situations, you know, economically speaking, and then using the, the printing presses, whether they be, you know, actual printing presses or digital uh, to try to get themselves out, you know, to print their way out of trouble, to print, you know, to monetize debt, etc. We're seeing 
you know, almost parabolic moves in central bank balance sheets and in money supply growth, et cetera. I'm hearing from you that you think things will trend toward returning to normal over the next 12 to 18 months, although it'll be a lagging sort of recovery. At what point do you think these methods of intervention will begin to, you know, genuine cracks will begin to emerge and they will stop being as effective and I use air quotes for that as they have been in the past, and we'll see genuine problems with either debt or currency crises, you know, things of that nature. Yeah, Do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, my, my easy case, easy case in the sense that uh, I think that uh, that that uh, I can project us forward to a period when there will be so many forces in place that would lead to price inflation that it's almost inevitable that. Uh, about 10 years from now, um, uh, the the uh, the disinflationary forces of cheap labor abroad will be mostly played out. It, it started in the early 90s. It was a slow process, but uh, that I think that mostly it will be played out by the early 2030s, uh, and uh, uh, that that force will be gone. Uh, and then the real uh, igniting factor will be. Uh, the elder care entitlements that keep boosting uh, the debt and keep putting us at a point where, uh, us, I shouldn't say us, putting the federal government at a point where uh, the cost of servicing the debt, just the interest rate uh, cost on the debt, uh, will be uh, a huge portion of federal expenditures. Uh, well, the U.S. is leading a charmed life because um, the average uh, interest rate on the debt is about 2%. Uh, Historically, it's been 6% since World War II. If, it, if, as the Congressional Budget Office projects, if it simply climbs a bit above 4%, given the huge amount of debt that's piling up, it's going to be a, a swamping cost to the federal government. And then on top of that, the elder care entitlements are going to have to be coped with. And then that's the mandatory spending. Then there's the discretion. So what I'm saying then is that the, there will be huge uh, pressure on the central bank to print our way out of this. And indeed, the, uh, the odd part is I've been writing articles about this for a long time, and I get the Krugmans of Krug, the Paul Krugmans and others of this world correcting me by saying, oh, we're not going to, we couldn't possibly be like Greece. I once did a cover story for Barron's that we could be like Greece, and Paul Krugman uh, wrote something saying well, that the, the people at Barron's are going crazy. I had to point out to Krugman and others that that, did, that analogy didn't come from me. It came from the Congressional Budget Office, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, that we could be like Greece in that sense. Now, Greece obviously owed debt denominated in euros and not in its own currency. But, and of course, there's an, it's a not to worry, they say, because our debt is denominated in our own currency. But of course, that will mean we'll put oil on the fire. That will mean that there'll be pressure on the central bank to print. And then if we get, we will no doubt, certainly to give or take in 10 years, be at a point where the labor markets will be tight. So if, if the props are, if that several props are taken out, cheap labor abroad, a reasonably tight labor market, and huge amount of money printing sparked by the, the need uh, for the uh, U.S. government to be able to pay all, all its expenses, those three factors will be in place to ignite price inflation. Now, I'm going 10 years out. You might say, well, why go 10 years out? How about five years out? Well, 
uh, other things could happen too. But the point is, what I'm saying is I, I'm dealing with a reasonably easy case. And as a matter of fact, Alan Greenspan agrees with me in a book he, he published around, it was actually it was 2008, uh, and uh, forget the title for the moment, he actually opined made that projection that by 20 by the 2030s disinflation for a disinflationary forces will be played out and there'll be huge pressure on my counterpart to print money because the elder care entitlements are exploding so that's an easy answer that's 10 years out if you want to then argue it could happen sooner because there might be other factors in place uh it's possible uh, i'm mm -hmm. just dealing with what i regard as a fairly safe prediction uh, right about the, yeah i i I think many, at least the people that I speak to and listeners of this show would be surprised to hear that you think it could persist for, you know, into the 2030s, this level of intervention, for example. Oh, well, what I'm saying is that what I'm saying is that the level of intervention, which has been sparked by this crazy great suppression, as I've called it, uh, uh, that, that's one thing. I'm just talking about the simple uh, uh, green eye shade look at the federal budget and at the course that it's on. And obviously, we've accelerated that. The Congressional Budget Office was projecting that debt held by the public would be over 100% of GDP in about 10 years. Debt held by the public, by the way, which is the figure that I like to use, a lower figure than the other figure that's normally used. Uh, uh, but uh, but now uh, they're projecting- What, what, what is debt held by the public? Can you explain that to people? Well, basically it does include uh, debt held by the Federal Reserve, but it, 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 put it, it excludes, it, debt held by the public, maybe I best explain by talking about it, what it excludes. It essentially excludes intragovernmental debt. It excludes the so-called trust funds that government is holding. Um, and so it's essentially almost what it sounds like. Uh, debt held by by U.S. investors, uh, debt held by central banks around the world, debt held by foreign investors. Uh, last I checked, it probably is corporations. Oh yes, sure, yeah. corporations, any any institution. Uh, and forty percent of our debt was, it may be lower now because of what's happened, but I'm not sure. Uh, forty percent of our debt was held by foreigners, uh, and and uh, about over a trillion of it held by uh, the Chinese. Chinese investors and sovereign wealth funds, the Chinese uh, central bank, and uh, and so uh, that's essentially uh, what the what the uh, Congressional Budget Office likes to use because that really is the debt that's out there. It does include uh, uh, central bank uh, de uh, debt held by the Federal Reserve, but th the point is that that intergovernmental debt is actually going to decline over the next few years because that's th th those those treasuries. Uh, treasury bonds and bills that are held by the um, by the uh, Social Security Trust Fund, they're they're, they're going to get they're getting cashed in now. They're, they're, in order to for the Treasury for the Social Security arm of the government to pay Social Security benefits, they're beginning to to sell back to the Treasury the bonds that they've been holding. And so what I'm saying is that that intergovernmental debt will be declining over the next few years. And, and that's when, I'm, when I try to explain to people that they're looking at a crazy number, you can look at a number that's declining, that intergovernmental debt. See, it, a lot of people like the intergovernmental debt as a measure of the unfunded liabilities. And that's another way of calculating the, the U.S. debt situation, unfunded liabilities going into the future. But I think, think it's simpler just to explain to people that right now we have debt held by the public that's about 100% of GDP, 
and it continues to decline, uh, a climb because the, the, the U.S. Treasury has to continue to incur deficits uh, in order to pay its bills. And it's, it's, it's going to climb to about 150% of GDP. Uh, it's, it, it's, in a couple of years, it's going to be above its, its post-World War II highs with no end in sight. And that essentially is the sort of clean measure that we can cite about that. So what I'm saying is that when you talk about, when you said people are surprised that there's going to be another orgy of money creation, the orgy of money creation is going to be sparked by something that's fairly straightforward. How is the U.S. federal government going to pay its bills? How is it going to meet the elder care entitlements that keep climbing? How is it going to meet the interest payments on its debt that keeps climbing? And then on top of that, the discretionary spending. Uh, there will be a huge incentive uh, for uh, the central bank to print money in order to meet those, uh, to pay those bills. And again, for further context on this discussion, thus far this year in response yeah. to the crisis, the U.S. government has stimulated the, the economy to what degree as a percent of GDP? Are you familiar with those? Numbers? Well, you know what I'm saying. You know, I, I, I think I'm sorry, stimulate. Well, I'm sorry. Well, they, they've. I believe that the number is somewhere around 30% where they, uh, yeah. you know, injected liquidity, printed money, however you want yeah, well, to characterize yeah, no, it. Indeed, it's, it's about, I just balk at your term stimulus. I don't, I don't regard it. Well, I, I do too, but it's a common language, right? Okay. <laughs> so what I'm, I'm basically just saying, what, what has the percentage been so we know the level of intervention? Careful of our language here, John. Come on. We don't have to use that. That's why I said price deflation. I'm trying to teach you good English. Okay. But, right. but, re, re, give me a better term. Well, it's, 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 it's obviously exp it's expanded the deficit. It expanded, expanded the government expenditure. That's all it's right. done. The, As a percent of GDP, yeah, what, what was yeah, that? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, actually, it's not huge. I guess if GDP is, about, is around $20 uh, trillion. Dollars. And it's up, and so uh, the, the 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 expansion of the of the deficit has is about three to four trillion. So so what? So it's about fifteen to twenty percent of GDP. I I don't know. I don't regard that as too important. I mean, what, what I look at is really what is what has it done to the debt, and how much has it boosted it by? But yeah, that's and that and if you take that fifteen to twenty percent, that's the reason why we're ratcheting up in terms of the congressional budget over to a hundred percent of GDP for debt held by the public. So and that that was supposed to happen ten years from now, in, right. given the normal trajectory. So so we're now ten years accelerated toward that day of reckoning or the beginnings of the point where the debt begins to become difficult to manage. Other things, of course, are going to start giving. The, 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 uh, certainly, they're going to start managing medical care for the old people. They're going to start shafting them in all kinds of subtle ways. There'll be all kinds of rationing and craziness going on. Uh, and it doesn't appear as though there's any uh, other way to work it out other than uh, to work it out in crisis mode. Uh, oddly, the last great profit of of, uh, of the uh, impending fiscal crisis was Bill Clinton, who briefly uh, uh, started talking about it in 08 and 09, about how we have to save for the future and so on, because we've got to pay uh, for the uh, baby boomers, when we were well, briefly incurring sur uh, surpluses of the budget in 98 and 99. Yeah. Right. Here's a question for you, and I think sometimes economists may get lost in their own data. Oh. And so we had um, someone in the news asked Jay Powell recently, um, you know, we're seeing a widening inequality wealth gap in the United States over the past, well, over the past several years, but let's just take the previous 10 years as a, as a period on which to uh, look at. Um, and Jay Powell said, 
you know, yes, I think that's that's true, but I don't believe that you know central bank intervention uh, has really anything to do with that. What? And and I think I, I disagree strongly with that. Uh, I'd like to get your opinion on it. But when we're talking about these things and we're looking at the amount of debt in a historical context, we're looking at the money supply growth in a historical context. Uh, and we we look at them and we say, well, that's unusual, but hey, everything is still, you know, everything still kind of works. What is it that we will look at amongst all the different things that we can look at? And I include social variables in that and as well as economic. What is going to be the thing that we look at and say it's broken? Oh. You know, what what's the metric or the indicator that we should look at and recognize that when that's you know, when that says something, it means that this is, you know, we, you know, we've, we've passed the point of no return or something's broken because we can look at these charts, these parabolic charts all day long and say, yeah, you know, this changes the nature of this or that. And, uh, but, and it's going to be harder to sustain and whatever timeline in the future. But what is it that tells us that something is broken? Well, uh, you can you use the term broken, uh, and uh, maybe I've been making a distinction between what's broken and what's a real crisis. Uh, uh, in, in terms of what Powell said, uh, the, the, the two obvious thing, things that he's missing in terms of exacerbating inequality and the Fed's role in it, which I'll mention in a moment, although I do want to insist on saying that part of the reason why I take an interest in the CPI and in other matters involving inequality is I do believe that the that income inequality uh, in any measured sense has been much exaggerated. It's, it, it, it has increased, but I don't, I think that most of the ways of measuring it that are standard very much exaggerate the increase. But with that said, getting to uh, what Powell said, the, the two obvious things that uh, have been going on. Number one, uh, the, the low interest rates, uh, the one, the zero percent interest rates, have been shafting old people, uh, old people who live on uh, on on fixed on on what they've saved, uh, old people, uh, many of whom are uh, are about at the poverty line or or not much above it, but they're getting by okay because they've they've accumulated. Maybe they're not paying for their house. They bought their little condo down West Palm Beach, as my mother had. So they're not starving, but they're hurting. And what what they do, what old people do, is the standard investment is the bank certificate of deposit with a fixed interest rate. Um, and they, they obviously should be in that kind of instrument, a safe instrument without a whole lot of future because they don't have a whole lot of future ahead of them and they just want a steady, reliable income. And so what we've, what, what I was first noticing, of course, hardly difficult to see it, uh, which was that uh, the poverty rate was not declining the way it should have in the 0102 expansion, uh, partly because uh, the, the the, uh, the returns on those bank CDs were basically not keeping people up, even with measured inflation. They, they, they were shafting those people. And now he continues to do so by clobbering uh, the interest rates and therefore clobbering the bank CD rate. So, and that's, that's uh, numerically pretty massive. And then, and then on top of that, obviously, uh, then these, then these old people become, uh, uh, become targets for some of the fast buck artists who give them cockamamie schemes for investing in the stock market that seems safe because they need to increase their returns. And, and then that, 
only exacerbates the problem. I know that firsthand because I, I knew a couple of those schemers when I was down in West Palm Beach with my mother. Uh, so that's where that the interest rate, the fixed income folks who are the old people, many of whom are quite limited in terms of their income, are the people he's directly shafting. And that's a part of the point that's original with me. Uh, but uh, second, uh, just as obviously, the, uh, the, the Great Suppression, the shutdown, has, despite the fact that it's nice, I guess, to, to have an unemployment insurance check and 600 bucks, it's not very good to lose your job, and not all those people are qualifying for the unemployment insurance. Essentially, of course, the shutdown has not hurt the knowledge workers, the 30, that's put it like 32% of us are knowledge workers. And I don't know how they get such a precise figure. But obviously, the better off have managed to keep their jobs, uh, can work from home, uh, and uh, survive. And the, so it's the, the top third have been okay. But, but Mr. Powell, what the, you just shafted the bottom two thirds. Don't you think that hurts? In, that exacerbates inequality? You know, get your head out from up your ass, Chairman Powell, is what I would say. Please understand what you do. And of course, please understand that, that it's not, hopefully not too subtle a point to understand what you're doing to people who buy bank CDs when you clobber uh, the interest rates. So that should be palpably obvious uh, to all uh, to see. Uh, but with respect to your point about that, well, that, that's already broken. We're broken in lots of ways. Uh, uh, and uh, if you want to focus on all, just only the ways in which I blame the central bank for the ways in which we're broken, I guess we could. I mentioned those two ways. Certainly, the, the, what, the, the, the only, again, thing that I latch on is that, is that we are definitely, the one thing that we can re be reasonably sure of is that we are headed for a fiscal crisis 10, 15 years down the line, and that what Mr. Powell just did is accelerated by 10 years. That's a crisis. Broken, however, the lots of things are broken. And, uh, but, but although when I think about what's broken, uh, I guess what comes to mind are many things that you can't specifically blame on the central bank. But, but certainly uh, the, the central bank's eager participation in the housing bubble uh, and, and then its mismanagement of what occurred in 0809 caused a major uh, crisis. And so uh, it's it's got that on its uh, on its record. I, I I believe, however, that we didn't really we we have not really had a conventionally measured housing bubble or stock market bubble. We do have a bond bubble, a bond bubble in a strict sense. But I don't think that bond bubble is going to burst over the next few years. I think that 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 what Powell is depending on, and he's probably going to be right, is that the U.S. The economy still leads a charmed life. Uh, our our treasury debt is still regarded as a safe haven, and he's the He's depending on that, and so that's the re reason why I don't foresee a crisis down the road. Uh, on the other hand, again, I, there are those who disagree with me. I'm immediately down the road, I mean, a crisis immediately down the road. I think right. I think that will that will muddle through this, but clearly we're looking at all kinds of breakage left and right in this economy just from the great suppression alone. We had a three and a half percent unemployment rate, and then look what happened because of government's suppression of the economy. Uh, I like that term, the Great Suppression. Is that yours? Did you come up with that? It's mine. I was hoping to get famous from it, John. <laughs> yeah, well, well, now you will, Gene. See, now you will. See, I thought, I thought, John, here, just get my ruminations. I thought, Great Recession, Depression, 
And I said, ah, suppression, isn't that perfect? It's, and and I began, the article that I wrote about it called The Anatomy of the Great Suppression, which I guess I can send, send you a copy of, just began with Murray Rothbard's point in his book about the Great Depression that, that not all uh, downturns are necessarily uh, business cycle theory uh, determined, and that there can be plague, there can be governments doing crazy things, there can be, there can be crazy work. We can have we can have a cessation of capitalist acts between consenting adults for other reasons. And so I said, yeah, well, I think if Murray were alive today, he would agree. This is just, this is the great suppression. The government has simply declared that, uh, that capitalist acts between consenting adults are by and large going to be suppressed. And that's the reason why we're having this soaring unemployment rate. And then I said, well, that means then that we don't have the subtle imbalances that Keynesians can't understand. Once, we, once the government starts to lift the great uh, it's it's uh, suppression will begin to climb out of it, which is more or less what's been happening. Although, of course, there's been a lot of carnage uh, of uh, so much that's occurred right. as well. Yeah, a couple points on on what you've just uh, articulated. The first is, you know, you you said initially you had thought of a fiscal crisis because I was saying, you know, what can we look at to see things are broken? And you said, well, broken is, you know, maybe it's a bit too ambiguous, but you said you see a fiscal, uh, potential fiscal crisis on the horizon in a 10 to 15 year period. And then you say that this has been brought forward because of the recent suppression and the intervention that uh, happened as a result. The three trillion, four trillion. Right. So is that, just to clarify, are you saying you think the fiscal crisis may be around like a five-year sort of time period oh, rather than uh, a 10-15 no, now? No, actually, I guess that what I meant was that I used to say 15 to 20 years down the road, and now I'm saying 10 to 15. You know, see, again, right. I, okay. what I'm latching on really is the easy forecast. You know, I'm the easy forecast because because I don't have to manage money. I don't, uh, so I, <laughs> therefore I'm just saying, what I would, although I will go sit my neck out and saying I, I will be surprised if we see any anything major any major crisis occurring over the next five years or, or the next two or three. Uh, obviously, a lot of people disagree with me. I do think that when you look at the realities, the, the, our debt is a safe haven. The U.S. economy is broken, but compared to what? Compared to what other economies? Uh, I think that uh, we will we, we lead a charmed life and we'll muddle through. But uh, but but the chickens will come home to roost because of the factors that I mentioned. Uh, Ten to fifteen years from now, the too many too many dark clouds forming. Ten to fifteen years from now uh, to be denied, and so I think that's a, a fairly safe prediction. Uh, right. And, and and I guess my original question was, as you say, the chickens coming home to roost means fiscal crisis, potential currency crisis. Oh, yeah, and then that kind of right, stuff. Exactly. And then I then I see another return to an unstable dollar, uh, uh, and uh, and then I see an opportunity for Bitcoin, and, and then possibly an, an opportunity for gold, uh, and uh, that's the potential silver lining. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that the dollar will become could indeed we could have a Dow dollar spot spot. Uh, Dow, Dow dollar death spiral. The people pulling out of uh, foreigners, of course, pulling out of our stock market, uh, and uh, and and then the dollar uh, declining as a result as they sell those dollars. So I think we could have currency instability ten to fifteen years from now. Uh, as part of that fiscal crisis, of course. So from, if I'm hearing you correctly, from here you see somewhat of a similar recovery post 2008-9, kind of a, oh. you know, a continuation of the macro trend, but albeit kind of muted, well, you know, not okay. that robust. Well, yeah, I guess that's a fair, you're right, in terms of timing, it's about the same, although actually, 
Uh, I mean, for what it's worth, it, I mean, of course, I like to insist on the point that we're, we're no matter what numbers you look at, uh, the, this is very different from 0809. Uh, and uh, for, in particular, a conventionally measured, uh, a, uh, a recession is a contraction in economic activity. But once you start... For two quarters. Yeah, well, the two quarters, the two quarters is more or less empirically right. Uh, it, it was never, you know, the, the, the folks at Business Cycle Dating Committee say, no, 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 we, we don't say two quarters. I, I could tell you an inside story about how politicized they are, uh, those folks who think they're, they're the big philosopher kings who talk about the business cycle. Uh, but that aside, you know. The, Go for it. What? <laughs> I'd love to hear it, maybe at the end of the conversation. Okay. Well, well, I mean, I heard this, uh, it was secondhand, but only once removed because uh, about what they did. But, but that aside, uh, uh, yeah, the, the two quarters tends to be empirically right. Although, as a matter of fact, uh, the, the, it may not even be two quarters this time. They declared the, that the recession started in February. They like to choose a month, but, but it's better to choose uh, the, the first quarter. So it basically just started in the first quarter, and then uh, it actually continues to the second quarter. But the point is that, so that is two quarters in terms of quarters, although it's fewer months probably. But the point is, we are already beginning, the expansion has already begun. So, so therefore, you're down in the dumps, but then you start moving up. So therefore, the recession is over. It lasted a little less than two quarters, unlike the 0809 recession that lasted a year and a half, six quarters. And, and then the nature of the of the recovery does that is very different. It's essentially what what already existed beginning to come back to life. So again, I, I wouldn't. But 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 you're. Uh, but certainly, if I'm right that we will uh, that you know then the, when when you technically when you get to a point where uh, output is on a par with the previous peak, which was the fourth quarter of, of 2019, which and if I'm right that it's going to be this by the second quarter of next year, then then basically peak to peak will be a shorter period than 08 or 09. So so then I'm just uh, maybe insisting on putting a fine point on it. But the point is, it's not going to be it's not a V-shaped recovery. It's a slow recovery. But it was a very quick recession. We are beginning to climb out of it. Unimaginable that the politicians are going to impose much of a, of a lockdown again. They're too scared to do that. And so even though there's been, you know, the Texas, they, they, they opened the bars, they shut the bars, that, that stuff, uh, there's going to be uh, a continued climbing out. Well, let's let's extend this uh, line of thinking and discussion for a moment and say, if you're right, and it's a much shorter recession than 08, 09, um, do you think, and, and because of the level, the sheer magnitude of the intervention that occurred over that very short historically period, do you think we will overshoot the recovery? And do you see there's any chance of perhaps, you know, rolling into a boom period oh. rather than a slow kind of slogging recovery? Well, I, I think it's, I, I don't expect that. Uh, it, uh, I mean, for what it's worth, uh, we, we, we never, as I m perhaps mentioned briefly before, uh, the, the, the 10 and a half year expansion that brought us to uh, a low unemployment rate, although, of course, it was partly low because a lot of people just quit working altogether. But uh, by the 10 and a half year expansion that ended in, uh, in the uh, uh, fourth quarter of last year, uh, in terms of the conventional measures of two things, a housing bubble or a stock market bubble, 
the stock the, the stock market in terms of conventional price earnings ratios uh, was way below where it had been in 99 and 2000 where there really was a stock market bubble so therefore we were there was no nothing ob observable in terms of a stock market bubble at least compared to what we still saw in 99 and 2000 uh, by uh, last year. And in addition, there was nothing like the housing bubble uh, measured in a couple of ways, uh, house prices in relation to general prices or house prices in relation to rents. So we had a 10 and a half year, so to speak, expansion. Uh, it was not a boom. I mean, it was only 2% a year. So that's why I would say that I'm just citing immediate precedent. I would be surprised if we get to a point where we have an overheated boom. I mean, it, it looks, I, may, probably we'll have some recession five years down the pike. But I, I, I'm, I mean, it's a, a, my crystal ball sort of speak clouds over when you talk about a real a getting into any kind of boom. I, I, I don't think it, it, it's too likely given what we, what we had 10 uh, through the expansion of, uh, that ended uh, in the fourth quarter of last year. Right. Fair enough. All right. Let's go back to something you said before, because can we talk about the CPI? <laughs> well, we'll get we'll get there. We're winding our we're slowly winding our way there. So, uh, you know, to me and many people in uh, you know, let's say Bitcoiners, we see um, well. Obviously, we see the world through the lens of Bitcoin many times uh, and sound money as well. Um, uh, but we see a lot of the inequality and the social unrest and the wealth gap occurring in the world as a manifestation of basically, you know, the central bank policy and the control over the creation of money via, via a very small group of people who are able to benefit, um, in it, you know, unfairly from that, uh, from that uh, right or power. Um, and I, and so again, if we look at the period that we were just referring to 0809 to fourth quarter, 2019, 10, 11 years, uh, 11, 12 years, of mild uh, expansion, mild economic growth, but also 10 years of expanding inequality by a number of, of metrics. Yeah. And, you know, we, I think, again, referencing my kind of, um, uh, referencing Jay Powell and how I, I believe his statement was disingenuous, I think this is largely a result of, of money printing. And so if we've seen such a high degree of money printing over a far more condensed period. You know, let's let's take let's say it was even more than what we saw over the preceding ten years, or at least you know close to it. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, um, and I suspect we'll see as a result of that not immediately, but I, in a, in not too long a period of time, commensurate the same process of inequality driven by money printing as we saw at any other period. And because we've seen so much money printing now, I suspect we'll see even accelerating inequality. And you referenced that, you know, you think the inequality has, the income inequality has been exaggerated in some respects. And I'd like to get your, you to explain what you mean by that and what, you know, your take on that. Okay. Well, I have to admit that, I, I guess when I talk about the reasons for uh, persistent inequality and the rise of inequality, probably I go for the low-hanging fruit, uh, which uh, and and that generally is not specifically related to the central bank, even though probably you could educate me a bit about uh, the way in which the central bank causes inequality that I'm not 
uh, specifically aware of. Obviously, uh, it, it lends money to the rich. It doesn't lend money. To the, it favors the large uh, financial institutions. It strengthens them. It, it does all kinds of things that they, it clearly creates greater concentration of, of uh, in the financial industry. It does all those things. Uh, and uh, when I talk about, but, but I was supposed to have a debate on inequality with a Washington Post columnist, and uh, I wanted to mention the simplest things, which is uh, that, uh, the, that in the high-wage, high-productivity cities, increasingly, because of government intervention, uh, the cost of housing is prohibitively high. And that, so we need government to do less. We need government to free up the real estate markets in New York, San Francisco, places like that, so that people uh, can move to these areas and enjoy the high wages. Uh, I, I speak about the, uh, restri the rise of restrict, and that is, of course, that used, didn't used to be the case in the 60s and 70s, but the, the, the restrictions on, on building certainly uh, not nearly as severe as they were over the last 10 to 20 years. And you just drive yourself crazy looking at San Francisco and Seattle, those crazy places, Portland, New York. Uh, they, they supposedly are bleeding heart progressives and they don't realize uh, what their housing policies do to people of limited means. They, they, and well, by the way, when you mentioned, I winced when you said that Powell is being disingenuous. I guess that's a sort of weak one. Powell probably doesn't even understand the simplest points about how he shafted poor people and how with his lockdown and how his, he doesn't even look at that, how, how low interest rates obviously hurt old people. Really? You don't think he, he's aware of that? Well, okay, what do I know? I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> speculating. It's just that he's so focused on his own Michigas that you know, when somebody asks him a question from left field, he doesn't even think about it, he just dismisses it. But maybe I'm mistaken about him. I'll give him... I'll give him. I'll, I'll, I'll give him uh, the benefit of the doubt because we can't really know what goes on in his mind. But 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 the point is that that and then the other part of the inequality story is of course the increase in restrictive licensure on all levels, particularly shafting. Uh, you know, people who want to be manicurists, or as Ed Glazer said, you know, you have to do more paperwork and more more red tape uh, to establish a bodega in the Bronx than to establish a software company. You know, all of the ways in which in which uh, the, uh, the, the, the it's been made difficult for people of limited means to get decent jobs, to have job mobility, and because I would extend that to lawyering, and one of my hobby horses. You know, you should be able. You know, a, a woman in the in in the poor area can can learn divorce law and, and housing law if she just apprentices herself to a, to a law firm for about six months either us could too and you don't have to go to high school college and law school to do these things so if we really freed up now and now of course that would be a real revolution but it used to be you didn't have to go to law school to be a lawyer and of course the the increase in the in restrictive licensure which is uh, measurable that's that's low-hanging fruit that that clearly is just insanity that and it, any presumably anybody with any smarts should be able to understand it so I'm, I'm discoursing maybe more generally around your point but but I I, take, I I tend to think that the ways in which the Federal Reserve exacerbates inequality uh, are a little bit more subtle and I would think that that you too want to go for the low-hanging fruit and you want to talk about the ways in which the Federal Reserve exacerbates economic instability, which of course does in turn exacerbate inequality, true enough. Right. But, but, the, but the economic instability is bad enough and it's hard enough to explain that to people, uh, getting into the subtleties of inequality. So I'm a little bit surprised that you are focused on the inequality point. Uh, I, I, I ducked your point about 
you, why do I say that it's being uh, that the measurement of inequality has been exaggerated? Uh, among other things, and uh, now it does get back to the CPI. I, I had a display about that, which I was going to show uh, that that if you believe the consumer price index and you match it up with uh, with the uh, measure that the BLS has been putting out for decades, a somewhat flawed measure, but which they call average hourly earnings of non-supervisory and production workers, which they say is the bottom four-fifths, non-supervisory and production workers. Uh, they, they, the, the BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, keeps posting a number in which they they divide that measure of wages, hourly, average hourly earnings, by their own consumer price index. And I believe that uh, it way exaggerates, uh, it, it way exaggerates certainly over a 30-year period, uh, uh, the uh, price inflation, and that if they only put, if they only used a couple of other measures, they would, they, they would show that there really has been fairly tangible progress in average, in real average hourly earnings. So people cite numbers like that from the vaunted Bureau of Labor Statistics, use its own CPI. And, and the scandal about that is that this consumer price index has been revised now, now gets into the red meat you may want to talk about. But starting in the in the nineties, they started to revise it so that it would be uh, it it uh, so that it, it it meant that the measured inflation slowed a bit. They revised it down so that it wouldn't be uh, it, it so that measured inflation would slow a bit. Uh, but they could not they could not revise it historically. Normally, uh, at the Bureau of Economic Analysis for GDP or in any other measure, a statistical agency, when it does a revision, then it does retrospective revisions in order to keep the series uh, consistent. But the reason why the Bureau of Labor Statistics did not do that is because we live in a crazy world in which uh, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of private sector contracts, including uh, maintenance payments for divorce, child support payments, other contracts are tied to the official CPI. And if they were to revise it historically, we'd have a rash of lawsuits. Uh, then people would look at the new CPI and say, hey, I got cheated. So they leave the old CPI uh, uh, unrevised, and yet they have the temerity to use this unrevised, the CPI, which is discontinuous, to, to deflate average hourly earnings. And that, by the way, clues you into the fact that the Bureau of Labor Statistics is still a sort of progressive, sort of left-wing oriented institution that prefers to exaggerate price inflation. Why? Because it, it, it tends to show that the working man is still getting shafted which is basically their belief the working man is always getting shafted according to the leftist, no matter what occurs. So I'm, 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 that maybe segues into the CPI, but I'm just using that as an example. There are other more subtle cases which I could get into, but I might take us far afield about measures of inequality uh, um, uh, that are exaggerated. It sounds like, it's a, like a, that's an interview in itself. I could get into all aspects of it uh, uh, if you wanted to, but I think it would take us too far afield. At least I'm mentioning the CPI is relevant to that. So people yeah. look at this, they, they, people look at a measure of the increase in average hourly earnings, and it shows a very tepid increase, but it'll use adjusted measures. They would find that the increase has been reasonably substantial, uh, very different from what 
the, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics publishes. And again, uh, as I say, uh, uh, publishes a number that everybody knows has not been revised to be continuous. So that uh, up until the 1990s, in that opinion, the consumer price index was exaggerating inflation because they have since revised their methods. So, right. I mean, that's a brief answer to your question, but probably we shouldn't get too much into it. Huh? Well, I think the reverse. I think we should get oh. into that now, but I'm just going to touch on the, the previous point because you said, you know, I'm surprised, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at um, kind of the, the this core of inequality coming from central bank intervention or whatever. And then there's other low hanging fruit that can account for uh, inequality. And, and I would say the, the ones you mentioned are more in pockets, whether it's, you know, re regulatory or policy difference and stuff like that versus the core essence of, of wealth, which is money creation, right? That's where, that's where we have to look for the more, the broadest effect. And I would just say this, cause I, I do want to get into the CPA, uh, CPI stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But to succinctly just say that, yes, I think, um, you know, government intervention, let's take a very simple example, like bailouts, uh, creates inequality because you're taking, you know, that the money that the government derives, they're taking it from the value of the economy as a whole, and they're redirecting it toward uh, bailing out Boeing, for example. And the people that benefit the most from that are shareholders of Boeing, executives, etc. So you're extracting wealth from the economy and rediverting it there. And so I think that has a wealth redistribution effect, and I think in effect it it, it's, it's, yeah. it spurs inequality. That type of economic intervention. Broadly speaking, I mean, that's the government is in effect a, a, a wealth redistribution mechanism, and it does so predicated on its own ideologies, imperatives, you know, people's uh, parties and people that it's pandering, pandering, et cetera, et cetera. But the government does it, it, it withdraws wealth from people that create wealth and they, they redistribute it uh, based on a number of different variables. And I, you know, I think that level of intervention, broadly speaking, over time creates inequality. But finally, just to say that. The reason why central bank money creation creates inequality is because uh, certain people are less capable of keeping p pace with inflation than others. Again, another very simple example. If I'm a kind of paycheck to paycheck person and I don't have many savings, whatever sa much savings, whatever I do have is in cash, then I am completely subject to the effects of inflation. Things at the grocery store become more expensive. The money is debased, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas if I'm a wealthier person, then I'm able to hold only as much cash as, cash as I need for expenses. And the rest of my savings I can put in, or, and this is typically the case, I put in assets or investments that help me uh, mute the effects of inflation, if not grow my wealth. And so both of those things, whether I'm just keeping pace with inflation better than the paycheck to paycheck person, or I'm growing my wealth by, you know, getting yield on my, my money in some capacity, stocks, bonds, real estate, whatever, um, then both of those things are causing greater inequality between me and that paycheck to paycheck person. Well, uh, that, those points are well taken. Uh, and in a way, um, I, I think you and I are going to arrive, if we actually explored it in great detail, we could have probably account for about 160% of the reason for inequality. I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that uh, I would necessarily agree with you that uh, what you're apparently implying, which is that the, the central bank accounts for like, 80% of the story is probably what you seem to be suggesting. Uh, uh, let me mention one other thing, which I, I hesitate when I'm, when I'm debating uh, people about it, and I've got a big uh, left-wing audience. I'm 
like to invite those people to my debates because I think they, they, they would especially benefit from what people like me and people like you have to say. Uh, then the, the other striking thing uh, about uh, inequality is the inequality of work. Uh, just having a job, you mentioned the paycheck, uh, part of it. Uh, and uh, by the way, everything you said is well taken about uh, your points about uh, exacerbating inequality. But bear one thing in mind uh, that stares you in the face. Interestingly enough, the Census Bureau actually publishes every year um, uh, the, uh, a breakdown of, of uh, household uh, income in fifths, in quintiles, and, and, then it, and then it talks about how many people in each quintile on average actually work. And, uh, and you find a perfect uh, uh, positive correlation. Amazingly, the average number of people who work in the top 20% is 2.2, over 2.1, 2.2, actually have a job. In the bottom 10, 20%, it's 0.4%. Uh, put another way, uh, the, if, if you simply look at the quintiles, you find that it seems to be mostly explained by the fact that whether you're working or not. You know, do, you, one would think that if you want to climb out of poverty, you want to improve, improve your income, get a job. Well, then, then the top, then the next quintile, uh, a, a little few, fewer than one people have a job. Uh, it turns out those rich people, the, the, the top 20%, their secret is that more than two of them work in each of the households on average. And, and this did not used to be the case. The, the poor actually used to have jobs. And so, so that's the huge uh, uh, gorilla in the room that Charles Murray and others have commented on, on, on work disincentives fostered by the welfare state that continue to this day, and that really are a major explanation for the whole problem. And the fact that we, we have so many people now, the labor force participation rate of prime age men is way down. So simply getting a goddamn job. If we, if we actually corrected for that and said, let's say that everybody had two people in the household with a job, uh, we would cure a considerable amount of the inequality in this country. So that's also pretty major, the welfare well, state. Yeah. I think that's major. Yeah. I, I, but I, I think yeah. it, it's definitely an influence. But once you're in the game, I think the same forces play on you. So let's say all these people get jobs. Yeah. Depending yeah. on what types of jobs they get and the level of the income they start, the, the, you know, they enter the game and automatically these forces that I articulated are playing on them. So the ones that are maybe earning less yeah. and are, have, find more difficult to keep pace with inflation, they move toward, you know, the one side and those who have excess and are able to protect themselves from inflation move toward the other, even accounting for both having jobs. But I, what I will say, and I think this gets under discussed dramatically, yeah. is um, the suppressive effect I mean, I, I think monetary debasement, monetary inflation is going to have a lot of these effects anyways, but I do think we exacerbate it tremendously and prohibit people from more capably being able to uh, mitigate the effects of it by having minimum wage. Uh, because it keeps people out of the labor force, obviously, you know, because it makes fewer jobs and it, and it prohibits people from, from taking jobs that they might otherwise do at a certain rate. And as to your point, to your very point, that means that more people are in the category that you described where they don't have a job and less people are in the category where they do have a job. And that, you know, kind of as at the outset, 
uh, you know, keeps people from being able to uh, okay. be being able to mitigate the effects of this monetary debasement. Well, I think the, the different than uh, you, you've almost uh, conceded a little, so to speak, to the extent that you and I even disagree about anything. Everything you've said about uh, about uh, the central bank and inflation uh, is well taken. And so, uh, so I, I'm, I'm, but you did want to pursue this, which is fine with me. Uh, I'm, I, you acknowledge my point about work, and then you mention minimum wage, which of course is the other point I would have mentioned as well. It's also low-hanging fruit, although a little bit difficult for progressives to completely understand. And so I sometimes stay away from it. I, I only want to mention one point, which is that, uh, that if you actually look at the life cycle and you look at people who start at the bottom, start at uh, minimum wage or sub-minimum wage jobs, if you just continue to stay in the labor force, uh, you will uh, then then uh, then the, the the longitudinal data indicate that your real income, inflation-adjusted income, will double in about twenty to twenty-five years. And this came from a bleeding heart uh, uh, economist, by the way, who told me this because he wanted to stress that 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 uh, people, the, the blue collar, the people of limited means workforce, uh, they will double their income in about 20 to 25 years. But that means by the time they're in their 40s, they plateau. Now, you and I, of course, we look forward to plateauing when I was 60. So therefore, he pointed out that it's limited. But if you continue to work, you continue to have a job, you'll become a supervisor. You'll do, so therefore, yeah, you'll do, you will stay ahead of inflation. You'll double your income in real terms. So there's opportunity there. But again, your point is well taken as well. Uh, I, I mean, and again, I, I would even say that if you have a lot to point out about this, about the central bank and inequality, then uh, I'm interested in that. I think I think my my understanding is a bit underdeveloped in this regard, and you've been educating me a bit about being more aware of that. Um, certainly, you know there was a witty point made about about the about the so-called the trickle-down effect. Uh, I forget by this. Actually, this guy's a bit of a comic, but he was quoting uh, uh, Obama and others in uh, in belittling the, the so-called trickle-down effect. The idea that that uh, that 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 if we if we give money to the rich, then it will trickle down to the poor. That really, you know, there was never really a viewpoint uh, of, of uh, nobody ever used the term. But that's what the progressives think is the so-called trickle down effect that that pe that that that, uh, that supply side subscribe to give money to the rich and it will go to the poor. So mm -hmm. so and then and Obama said, well, it doesn't work. It's out of the you know, we can't do that. And then this guy said. Yeah, it doesn't work. But why don't you just walk over to the Federal Reserve and, and, and tell them that that it doesn't work? What the heck do you think they are doing? They're basically giving money to those rich bastards, and 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 they and they think it's going to trickle down to the board. That, that they are practicing trickle down effect. And you say right. it doesn't work. You might be right. So all of that, all of those points are well taken. Yeah. yeah, and and just to put a capstone on that, because I imagine a lot of people listening will wonder the relevance between a system like we have now and a sound money system, and of course the one that I uh, you know mostly promote, which or entirely promote, which is Bitcoin, is that because this is a problem of twofold. One is the the type and nature of the money, and the two is how it's directed, created, and how it flows, and who controls the flows. And so that obviously bestows an advantage. If I control the creation of flow of money, I can give it to my friends. I can put it through, you know. Uh, my, you know, I, I get to determine that, as you just said, why don't you just go, go tell Obama and say, stop, have, you know, 
inserting it at the top, basically, and insert it at the bottom or the center or whatever. So that conveys a, an undue advantage. But the, the thing is, is this a part of this process will still continue under a sound money system for one reason. It just will be, it'll be muted. So if I have a, a sound money, let's say a deflationary currency, or let's just say it's not inflationary, it's a, it it's maintains its value. Just a hypothetical. Oh, value. Okay, now you see you're misusing those terms. I, I try well, to teach you. Okay. It's a flat. Okay. It's neither inflationary nor deflation. Bitcoin is flat. It's not. It doesn't grow. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't uh, contract. Right. Right. Let's <laughs> use that. Let's use that definition. Yeah. In that, in a in a society based on a money like that, the people who are able to save at a higher rate, the the non paycheck to paycheck people, will still be able to increase their wealth. They will get be able to make their capital work for them. They'll be able to derive yield through investments of various kinds, versus the paycheck to paycheck people, which won't be able to do that. So you'll still have more more than likely, as far as I can see, and uh, a, a, a type of inequality. But the difference is, is that that paycheck to paycheck person won't simultaneously be losing value in their savings as they are now. So the difference is now people are able to gain yield. Uh, or the, the main difference is one party is gaining yield while the other party is, is basically losing. What, whereas under a sounder money system like Bitcoin, I think you'll still get people who gain yield. But the people who just decide to save in the currency or who are forced to live paycheck to paycheck won't be losing so much as a result of that because their money won't be being debased, you know, on an ongoing and a perhaps increasing scale. Yeah. Well, there's, no, there's, of course, you, 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 you caused me to think about uh, what will happen to the life cycle of the bottom half of the population. We stipulate that they all have a job, they're paycheck to paycheck, as you suggest. Uh, they're raising a family. I think it actually is a bit of an open question because we, know, we don't really have, at least for the US, an historical precedent. In the old days, uh, it was really that you depended on your children to support you. I mean, there was, first of all, there wasn't a whole lot of old age to look forward to. All, all kinds of questions really about that. I, I, I mean, I say that even though I could speculate that, uh, that if we don't have Social Security, if we don't have uh, the government falsely indicating to people that they can be adequately supported in their old age, I think that that will begin to fade in about 20 years because of what I said, it, it's unaffordable. It's affordable now. Medicare is actually killing a lot of old people anyway, but they still like it. But 20 years from now, it's going to begin to fade. So what will happen? Might people have more children because they want, because those children will be, have a role in taking care of them? Uh, you know, we don't really know. But I, what I'm, or, or indeed as well, if I may introduce another point, uh, if we actually do have a Bitcoin economy, I think we can double our output every 10 years. Uh, and, those, and those paycheck to paycheck people probably will find the ability to, to have some savings out of their paycheck. And if you work from your 20s up to your 50s or 60s, yeah, even a paycheck to paycheck person who saves a little bit can still yeah. get by. Look, my father, who was raised uh, in the great, came of age in the Great Depression, he actually went on to become a millionaire. Um, when he was he did my taxes every year. I hadn't saved any money. He said, look, as my friend Heshi once advised me, always save something, 
even if it's as a little as a dollar a week. I mean, so I mean, you and I may be a little uh, historical. My father came from a depression era, and yet those people were putting money away. They, my, my, I had grandparents who were immigrants, uh, poor immigrants. My, my grandfather worked as a waiter, lost his job in the 30s, then worked as a dishwasher, supporting a family of four, then went back to waitering, then retired, died in his early 70s, and, and he and his wife, they left $6,000 and that in 1950 money. How the mm -hmm. heck did these people manage to have $6,000 in the bank accumulated? Just maybe they, they would choose, admittedly, John. <laughs> but all I'm saying is that you, you might, you might, you know, you, I think you're maybe somewhat exaggerating the capacity of paycheck to paycheck people to responsibly save some money over time that does build up. Uh, that, so I just want to open up that point. Even though, again, I, 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 so therefore you might even be granting too much in the Bitcoin economy. Uh, because once you factor in economic growth, larger incomes, and once you factor in the, the, the consideration that people will have more uh, planning for the future if, they, if they're less dependent on the idea, the false promise of government supporting them in their old age. Absolutely that. And I think, you know, to answer the question, you know, yes, of, co of course, you know, people will work hard and save. I think what I'm saying is that the, the forces working against people attempting to save are greater now than they were in your father's era. And I think they'd be better in, you know, a Bitcoin denominated world. And so, yes, climbing out of that virtuous paycheck to paycheck cycle would be easier. Of course, everybody has to start there. And if you, the degree to which you want to climb out of it is predicated on you know, you, where you're starting from, your work ethic, your determination, et cetera, et cetera, all those different variables. It's just to say, how easy is the system making it or how difficult is the system making it for an individual sufficiently motivated to do so? That's the big question. I think today we're in a, in a space where it's perhaps harder than ever. Well, to, to all uh, yes. No, I, no, indeed. And I, and, I grant, and I think, again, you've taught me a few things here. And I, and I, and I think that broadly speaking, I, I grant your point that an inflationary economy is indeed uh, uh, skewed toward uh, the better off and does uh, exacerbate inequality, and mm -hmm. uh, for sure. And uh, if you and I, you know, quibble about how much of a role it plays or, or not, uh, then uh, it's merely a quibble. I, 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 I take your your broad point. Yeah, yeah, Gene. Let's um, let's break into some of the CPI stuff. Yeah. And I think. Maybe the best way is I'll just ask you, I have a couple questions regarding it, and I'm hoping that those questions will kind of lead into other things that you might want to discuss rather than trying to frame it up on some, you know, in some particular way. So sure. first off, how, um, how do you think this or how do you, how has the CPI uh, calculation, uh, how does it influence uh, the GDP calculation? And how does it influence the policy that's predicated on GDP calculation? I know there's many different ways you could go here. So tell me what's kind of what first comes to your mind when you think of those. I have to think about how I can work in my hobby horse into this. Answer. <laughs> Let me see now. Or it? just tell me whatever you want about the CPI and we'll go from there. All right. Well, okay. Thank you. Okay. So I've got a fork in the road here too, too, too often. Okay. Well, I, I, I do think that, that uh, the, uh, that, the, there are a lot of uh, free market people, most free market people that I like and respect, uh, especially people of an Austrian bent, believe that the, uh, that the CPI understates inflation, that we really haven't had 2% inflation, we've had you know, 4 and 
And one of those, and, and I guess, of course, this now ties in with GDP. One of those is John Williams, an economist who puts out something called Straight Shooter, I think. I've spoken with him a bit. I emailed with him a bit. Uh, and so people tend to swear by him. And he seems to think that real inflation has really been running like 5%. And then I would then, uh, I do a reductio ad absurdum on that. Uh, if uh, that, that inflation has been running not 2%, but 5%. And uh, uh, the, the, as, uh, as you know, uh, GDP is calculated in nominal terms, nominal dollars, and then it's deflated by a price index. Now, the technical relationship between the consumer price index and the GDP deflator is a bit different because GDP is measuring more than just consumer spending. And by the way, just to get into another technical wrinkle, the, the, uh, the deflator for consumer spending is, is used by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, not the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The Bureau of Economic Analysis long ago decided that they were not going to use the CPI construct to, to deflate consumer spending. They used something called the Personal Consumption Expenditures Deflator, the PCE. And uh, they use, I think, more sophisticated methods. And their PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Deflator, for the consumption part of GDP, uh, uh, is, uh, shows a, a slower inflation than the, the CPI does. And I think their methods are better. So I'm already saying that the CPI exaggerates inflation for that, uh, for that very reason, because I think the PCE is a more accurate measure. But, but getting back to John Williams, uh, John Williams says four to five percent. I think sometimes he says six percent. Uh, but if it's more than four percent, as I try to explain to people, look at nominal GDP, nominal GDP before inflation. Nominal GDP before inflation has been rising, rose by four percent in the in the ten and a half year expansion that just ended, rose by almost exactly four percent a year, and so. Uh, if we believe that inflation, and again, CPI, GDP, they're related. If, and when, when John Williams says 5 to 6% inflation, he means almost all measures of inflation. That means that if we apply a 5% uh, deflator to a 4% increase, we get a 1% per year decline. So he is, by implication, literally saying that, th that there was no expansion in the 10 and a half year period the fourth quarter, we actually had a contraction. And part of the problem with that is that we have so many other indications as even if you want to be completely cynical about gross domestic product and how it's measured, we have so many other indications that there was an expansion. We have independent data from the unemployment insurance claims that there was a huge increase in the number of people employed. Is, is, is the, GDP is mostly the private sector, and therefore, if the private sector is, 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 is rapidly increasing employment, business formations, every other independent measure is increasing. Are they that crazy? They're increasing during a contraction? So I, I, I have had one conversation with somebody who literally believes that there was no expansion uh, over the previous 10 and a half years, that there was a contraction. But I take it you don't believe that. You believe there was some kind of economic expansion. And again, if there was an economic expansion, then it would have run about 2%. And that means that, uh, that the inflation rate of about 2% is valid. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so that's why I use that broad brush example to sort of try to throw doubt 
into the minds of people who would march in the other direction and say that the CPI understates inflation. Now, I believe it overstates inflation, and for many reasons that I can't explain. Uh, and let me, uh, uh, let me start actually with, with, the John, uh, with the famous John Vallis gaffe, which now is enshrined in history, where you just briefly said, it was only about you know, a, a few nanoseconds, John, where you said, and it ignores college tuition. Yeah. So, so I pounced. <laughs> that was the only thing I remember from that interview. I don't remember what else you were talking about. And so I sent you, I sent you the subcomponent of the CPI on college tuition, and I showed you that for any period, any long-run period you want to look at, that that subcomponent was rising by what over six and a half percent a year. It increased fifteen-fold. Uh, the CPI was indeed tracking college tuition, and and they showed it it was increasing by six point seven percent per year. So they were doing it a fair amount of justice, but. Now let's get into why they are probably overstating the increase. And this gets into the broad problem, the bureaucratic problems that, that, that the Bureau of Labor Statistics faces, uh, where they, aren't, they don't do as good a job as a private sector agency would do. Uh, so they, what, what are they faced with? They, they are actually looking at, the easy way to do it is just to look at sticker prices of college tuition. Uh, and, uh, and, and so they show a 6.7% per year increase, a 15-fold increase. But what they, what they aren't, they, it would take a lot of research to delve into what's really been happening on the college level for the last 20, 25 years. Uh, uh, that what's really been happening is that the colleges have a sticker price for the rich, and then they bring, to give all kinds of discounts, but they're not called discounts. They, they're called scholarships. They're called all kinds of other subtle things. So, you, so probably you, you, even if you asked the college, uh, the people that, at the colleges who charge uh, what, uh, uh, what the traffic will bear, they won't even give you straightforward information. So what's really been happening is that that 6.7% a year has been exaggerated over the last 10, 15 years because people are getting huge discounts based on need, but they aren't presented as discounts. So, uh, and, and, wh and why, why is that happening? In that particular case, it's that we have a bureaucracy, we have a of the Bureau of Labor Statistics, where they have limited resources, limited imagination, they're just supposed to do a job, so they are overstating the increase in college tuition for that reason. And, and, and broadly speaking, in terms of what you're facing, even if you and I were going to have all the resources needed to do a good job, you're facing a number of problems. No one, number one, um, you're facing an entrepreneurial economy where over the last 20 years especially, there's been a whole lot of discounting. And it, and it takes even of the same good. And it takes a whole lot of, of being faster on your feet to track it. And they miss it all the time. They miss the Walmart effect. Walmart started to sell groceries, and I can explain why there was a problem. This was thoroughly documented. Walmart sold, sold brand name groceries, the same brand name groceries that were being sold in the competition, but they, but they sold it for like 20% less. And that was never registered by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Because of their bureaucratic methods, they just linked to the, to the Walmart uh, prices when Walmart became part of their sample, and they never registered the 20% discount. Then there's the big problem that nobody knows how to solve, technology, technological improvements, technological differences. And the most egregious case of that, by the way, getting back to the Walmart effect, 
they are also missing the, the, uh, the Amazon effect. They're having the same problem. They're just linking the Amazon's lower prices. Uber started to charge less for a cab ride, and they just they never registered that, the Uber discount. So all of that entrepreneurship, you really have to be zealous in order to track it, and they don't with the CPI. And that, by the way, is a problem with the personal consumption expenditure deflator. But, but now we haven't gotten into the biggest problem of all, the smartphone. What are you going to do about the smartphone, John, if you're in charge of the Bureau of Labor Statistics? Uh, and by the way, it really blindsided them, caught them unawares. Do you know that it was really during the Great Recession, 08 and 09, I had to be reminded of that, that the smartphone revolution started? Mm-hmm. That, that people, people, based, we had, we had, I, I never used one of those old phones. One of those, you could do texting, you could do phoning on it. And then suddenly they're bringing out the smartphone that can do nine other things. Suddenly, I don't use a watch anymore. I don't use a flashlight. I, I don't, I mean, all kinds, I, obviously I listen to you, John, because mostly on my smartphone. So it can do all of these things. And, uh, and it costs more. But you know, but, but, but now, but it makes so many other items no longer necessary. Um, how do you incorporate that into your consumer price index? That technological revolution. Uh, and what they did was they simply threw up their hands and they linked it to the, uh, to the old cell phone. They linked it. They registered neither a price increase or price decrease. They just linked it. Now, I think that you would agree that given all of the things that this smartphone can do, it was essentially a price decrease. So when I read, I want to read you, you know, all the skepticism that comes out about how, uh, what should a consumer, what should a price index do? Well, why not just be honest? Why not just take, you know, the basket of goods and track it over time? Don't talk about substitution. I'm going to get that into into that. Why is it so difficult for them to do? Well, it's difficult for them to do because as a practical matter, they have to trace all kinds of discounting. Uh, They have to worry when a new furniture store opens up, they have to, they have to, they have to link it with an old furniture store, but more especially, they have to worry about the problem of new technologies. Or to, uh, to use the garden variety example that I used to be my favorite since I'm, I'm not really learned about computers, uh, is that you, 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 there was a point at which you were selling a car and then, and then the next year you came out with the same car except the same car had power steering and power brakes. So it's a much safer car to drive. And, uh, and, yet, and yet it's the same car. So, so uh, uh, is that, how do you link those two? How do you register that in the consumer price index? So therefore, in an economy in which goods are changing all the time, in which technology is changing all the time, in which discounting on the part of entrepreneurs is especially rife, there, even with the best of intentions, you are bound to overstate. And then if you compound it with, with, the, with the bureaucracy of the, of, the, uh, of the Bureau of Labor Statistics that does things by rote, then it's going to get even worse because they're going to miss the Walmart effect, they're going to miss the Amazon effect, and they're going to miss the Uber effect. So that's in broad brushstrokes why the consumer price index overstates. But by the way, it's not huge. It's a little less than 1% a year by most estimates. So, so if, you're, if your inflation rate is 5%, 6%, then 1% ain't great. But if your inflation rate, the real inflation rate is registered as 2%, and then you have 1%, and then if you take it over a 30-year period, that 1% can make a huge difference uh, mm-hmm. in terms of how you calculate the increase. In, that 1% can build up. 
Uh, and that's why, that's why the price index isn't interested in me for the most part, because the, the direction from one month to the next or from year, one year to the next is not a big deal if you're, if you're mismeasuring with the same kind of bias. But, but, the, but the mismeasurement over a 10, 20, 30 year period becomes fairly serious in terms of measuring wages, salaries, incomes, and so on. So I probably said enough for you to comment more than enough, so I'll shut up for a moment. There are other things I wanted to get into that are much more contentious having to do with the substitution effect, but that's the broad story. Oh, oh by the way, I just want to say one other thing, John, which is that why do people tend to think that in, that in, that that uh, that inflation is undisputed. Social Security uh, recipients tend to think so. You know, their Social Security paycheck is tied to the to the inflation rate. I think that that there that there is a kind of bias in the way people look at prices. That if you have a two percent increase in prices overall, then a lot of prices are going up by five percent. Some go, some are going down. Some are flat. Uh, some and and so I think that people tend to notice the prices that are going up more than they notice the prices that are going down. And that, I think that's the reason why there's an honest, even among non-free market Austrian types, there's that bias. And I guess there's the, on, among our friends, there's a tendency to believe that the government is monolithic and not to realize that it really isn't and that it's quite possible for our, for our government agencies to be exaggerating price inflation because that's the way they bureaucratically work. Right. Yeah. Lot there. We'll get into the the more contentious issues that you were just referring to, and perhaps you know by another name of the hedonic substitution uh, arguments in a moment. Well, well hedonic, but, hedonic is something else, John. Right, but I want to get into that as well. Okay, well, but well, the way um, I did mention it already, but, but so one of the big ones that's getting a lot of focus these days, and you touched on it there, is the. Uh, you know, the effect of technology in bringing down prices for similar or new services, right? A so, smartphone, John. Do you, right, right. You know what the right. most difficult one of all? You don't need a flashlight anymore. You don't need a compass. You don't need a watch. Yes, yeah. that's my point. Right. So well, we right. have How do you do we, that? We have technology and innovation putting downward pressure and, and on told, prices for I, these services. I told you, John, the way the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics dealt with it. They said, we're not dealing with it. We're just looking right. it with the old clip-on phone. But go on. So here's my, here's my question, Gene. Yeah. Um, you have that large and a substantial trend, yeah. and then you have the trend of monetary inflation. And so one of the questions that comes up in my mind is, is the monetary inflation keeping the full quality of life benefits from this technological innovation from consumers? So is, is the full effects of this technological innovation being dampened from the perspective of the consumer due to the counterbalancing effect of monetary inflation? So to put, more, put it more simply, would there be more benefit derived from this deflationary technological effect if it wasn't counterbalanced by monetary inflation? Will we be deriving more benefit? Well, I guess this gets back to what I said uh, uh several hours ago, John, and <laughs> I said that, that really, um, uh, just to pick a number, we, 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 the, the free market, uh, the free unfettered market has been giving us 5% per year price declines, and the monetary inflation has turned it into a 1.5% increase. So they've been, right. they've been giving it. So indeed, the answer to your question is a resounding yes. We would have been benefiting from declining prices of 5% a year. Uh, right. and, but although, by the way, for what it's worth, the, the, 
goods, you know, you can separate the oil price indexes into goods versus services, and they're approximately about the same in terms of the, the balance. Approximately. The, the goods part has been flat. It's only the services part that's been increasing. But even for the goods part to be flat is ridiculous. The goods part is probably really, in a free market, been declining by 8 or 9%. But, but because of the monetary inflation, they've been, they've been uh, keeping it flat. So indeed, obviously, if we didn't have monetary inflation, all of this stuff would be much more affordable. We would, we'd be going, uh, everything would be cheaper by 5% a year, not more right. expensive. So you, you mentioned that, um, yeah. you know, obviously part of the, you know, your core premise of this discussion is that uh, the government has overshot uh, CPI and inflation in many instances. Consistently um, does, because of their methods. Yeah. Right. What are the, the negative effects of doing so in your mind? And, oh, oh. So I guess what I'm, what I'm looking for is what are the incentives the government has to either under or over report inflation? Well, see, that gets into an interesting story. The, 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 the point about uh, the key point I tried to make earlier then about incentives is that is that a bureaucrat wants to do, uh, you know, uh, uh, less with more. I mean, that and that 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 when you go over uh, the different categories of of overstatement uh, and things that the B, that the CPI has missed, and then most of those, almost all of those, seem to have something to do with simply bureaucratic laziness, uh, not uh, not uh, trying to intervene in your sampling technique when you pick up Walmart and when almost all the brand name items are twenty percent cheaper, and then you don't register that and you just link it, or uh, or then being so daunted and so blindsided and surprised by by the move to smartphones, the smartphone revolution just happened again during the Great Recession. The, the people just basically threw away those clip on clips, those folding phones, the cell phones, and they start buying the smartphone. And so, and not then then uh, and then realizing well, the, 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 you rationalize it. You know, the smartphones were more expensive than. The, uh, than, the, than the cell phones. So, so you could sort of rationalize in your mind and say, well, we're not, it's more expensive, it's pricier, but we're not gonna register that, we're just gonna link it and make it flat. But obviously, if the smartphone can do about 12 things that the cell phone can't, that's laziness. So therefore, what I'm trying to say is that, I, that, that, uh, that the more, sort of, so to speak, sophisticated view of government is that much of what it does is simply due to bureaucratic incompetence. But with that said, with that said, certainly uh, the people at the Bureau of Economic Analysis who do the GDP accounts, uh, they... Uh, they decided that they're going to take the inputs from the BLS, the, the price inputs, but they're going to construct their own price index because they want to be more accurate. Um, and so there's been, so that's a little bit of smarts. Also, especially uh, this happened, uh, you perhaps remember uh, or know about the Boston Commission uh, when there was concern in the mid-90s that Social Security was costing the government too much. That's when uh, uh, the, uh, the interaction between the Clinton administration and certain economists uh, uh, gave rise to the Boston Commission to try to get the Bureau of Labor Statistics 
to uh, recalculate the consumer price index uh, so that they would be a little bit more realistically in line with actual price increases. And that was strictly motivated by the government wanting to save money, therefore save money on Social Security. And to some extent, it is doing so. But, but only some of what the Boston Commission proposed was implemented. Uh, the, Boston, the, the, the CPI now overstates inflation by less than it used to, but it still does. So there was only a certain number of things that could be done. So you, if you want to pure, use your pure model, then you would say that, uh, that, on the, that, that, if the, that if the government is simply motivated on saving money on entitlements, and, and if so many of those entitlements are tied to inflation, then, then it would presumably uh, want to modify the consumer price index. But even that gets subtle. There's a pop- Downward, though, right? They'd want to downward. modify it downward. Yeah. Thank you. Downward is yeah. what I meant to say, John. Thank you. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but, but the point is that, that you even have to ask yourself a more subtle question, which is, which is that most politicians just want to kick the can down the road. And mm-hmm. the, the other, by the way, downside of measuring it, uh, what the measure? Oh no, no, that's not true. Yeah, if you measure it downward, you get a little bit more of GDP growth. So, so there is some motivation to do that. But, but, but by and large, the bureaucracy rules, and uh, by and by and large, uh, by and large, uh, politicians really don't care about what's going to happen when they're no longer in office. And so the, the fact that, these, that this spending is increasing is usually of no great concern. So you really don't have, in my view, if you analyze, if you do sort of the public choice theory of government, public choice is perhaps well chosen, but it's distinguished from private choice. People make private choices, but then if you're in government, you make a public choice. And, and so the public choice uh, motivations are very different. And why do you really care if entitlements are costing a lot when you can afford them now? And that's, that's a worry 10 years from now. And who that cares? You can blame that on whatever pre- guy's in charge then. It's not going to be you. So therefore, right. there's not a huge motivation to modify. And the bureaucratic my motivation is is great, and but on top of that, if we were to talk about a world in which we had private sector calculations of a, of, a, of a consumer price index, even they would have headaches and problems because ultimately, you don't we don't even know quite what to do with the smartphone. Uh, we will always make mistakes, and I think the mistakes will usually be to exaggerate inflation a bit. We can do a much better job, but at the end of the day, even the very idea of a price index is part art and part science. It's uh, it's clearly uh, uh, it's clearly there's a lot of guesswork, a lot of art in between. Uh, and it seems it seems to be a manifestation of the des- you know central financial planning, central bank planning, you're kind of a required tool in their tool set oh. that as you, as you said at the outset, okay. maybe we would still have, uh, there would still be demand in certain instances for understanding what, what more broadly the uh, increase in prices or decrease in prices, the change in, in consumer goods uh, in a given year, maybe there would be demand for that in pockets in a in a non centrally planned economy. We had a lot of divorces. We had alimony payments and child support. If prices are falling, there would be a motivation. Business contract. If you have prices falling, then there's a lot of motivation possibly to keep track of that and have contracts tied to it. So that was what I was positing. But but getting to your point, the Federal Reserve basically plays with, uh, with what were they doing? They were let, they were saying well, our target is a two percent inflation rate, but. But partly, there was a certain understanding, certainly on Greenspan's part, that the inflation rate is a bit exaggerated. So they're targeting it in the near term. And so, so uh, if you talk about 
what is the history of the, the history of, of, of the history of, of, of the consumer price index is in left-wing progressive uh, 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 government that the Bureau of Labor why is the Bureau of Labor statistics looking at prices because there was a concern on the, on the part of labor oriented Bureau of Labor statistics about uh, about uh, wages and and, and the big use uh, initially uh, was in 1917, 1918, to tie wages in the shipyards to prices because you're always, they always, you're always going to get price inflation during a war, the reasons that we understand. And then, and they didn't want, uh, they didn't want strikes, and so they they tied it to 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 a, to a uh, uh, they put out the consumer price index in order to hike prices, hike wages in line with prices. And then, and then, of course, then Social Security came along, that, and and then the inflation hit in the 70s, and then, and and because of that, there was left-wing legislation to get uh, the uh, Social Security tied to the price index. So it basically, serves left-wing ends, Bob. Right. Uh, right. Uh, uh, Bob, John, and and, and but, but but if you want to get to the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve is mostly looking at the oscillations of the price index, they're sort of counting angels on the head of a pen. Yeah, yeah. You know, they couldn't achieve 2% inflation, you know, all that crap. You know, so they're, they're really a minor player in a way in, in the use of, of, the, of the P. They, by the way, mostly, Greenspan started the precedent of mostly looking at the, the, at the personal consumption expenditures of later, the PCE, which is put out monthly, although it comes out about, uh, about three weeks later than the CPI. Right. And by the way, this whole this whole business of a monthly index is also a little crazy. Having to generate it monthly also is a big strain. Probably a private sector would never do that. Yeah. yeah. My my point is just that in in a free market uh, economy, yeah. and we won't get into you know what is necessary to facilitate that, but the, the CPI seems to me like it's just a tool that's either required or you know there's a lot of uses for it in a centrally planned centrally banked economy but in a free market economy other than the specific use cases that you know you reference let's say in you know uh, divorce proceedings or, or or things like that but would that even you know would there be a demand for it i don't think broadly in in a free market economy that's not centrally uh, controlled and manipulated, it would it would be required. It wouldn't be used as a policy instrument because that that policy around those issues would not be constructed. Maybe you need a way to assess uh, price changes and cost of living in certain free market behaviors and activities and interactions. And and in those cases, you would probably get far more relevant uh, price uh, indexes probably on a local level because they're because that's where it's more relevant to the people with who, who are using it in that in a given market okay I, I mostly I mostly agree with that I guess I guess the only way in which I would uh, would modify your point instead of saying centralized planning I, I would I would put a finer point on it and say that in a in, in an inflationary economy in an economy in which uh, the money supply uh, expands faster than goods in which you're going to continue to have rising prices as a result, uh, and in which you have periodic bouts of double-digit in, uh, price inflation, and then always the risk of accelerating to triple digits. Uh, then, uh, and then, if on top of that, you have fixed entitlements uh, that the pub, that the government gives out in terms of Social Security. Then you're going to have interest in price indexes, uh, especially. But so it's not the, it's not so much the centrally 
plan. Admittedly, the Federal Reserve, you're right, it's central planning agency, and, and it does target price inflation. So in that sense, you're right. But really, the main use and the main motivation uh, is the trillions of dollars worth of contracts that are tied to it in an inflationary economy. And, and you're right, of course, I agree that uh, that in a, a in an economy in which there's Bitcoin, in an economy in which prices, as conventionally measured, generally don't move up or down in any noticeable way. Even though, of course, that's just a generalization. You might you probably won't have too much of an interest in tracking price changes. But in a Bitcoin economy, uh, where uh, where prices uh, could continue would continually decline, I, I could see. Uh, demand for it, just as you grant, but there's lots of, see, there's lots of long-term contracts. We don't know what the divorce rate will be like, John, but the point is, I can still see it being fairly, uh, uh, a fairly good business to turn out reliable price indexes. And I, I, I certainly agree with you as well. Uh, this gets into another wrinkle involving the CPI that clearly, um, if you live in San Francisco, where, as I looked it up, where, where uh, San Francisco area generally, which includes Oakland, rents were going up by 4% a year, more than doubled in, in 20 years, uh, as distinct from other parts of the country where rents don't increase as much. I'm just saying that clearly you are correct in saying that, well, in, implying at least, that we have def very di somewhat different price inflation experiences depending upon where we're living. And so uh, probably if you and I were to develop a business in which we, in which we sell our price indexes to lawyers and contract writers and so on, we would probably have developed an index that's, uh, that's attuned to the market. Although again, we would still have a lot of difficult headaches in trying to track what really goes on uh, with, uh, with prices. But we would do a better job than the Bureau of Labor Statistics does. Yeah, and I think perhaps a, a non-contentious statement would be, yeah. even if you still would require, there'd be use cases for a price index, mm -hmm. the lower the volatility in the underlying currency, the less, uh, the oh. less demand there would be for price indexes, just because the change would be less dramatic. Yeah. Well, I, I think we I think we would put out our price index, you know, maybe yearly would be good enough, no more than quarterly, certainly. Right. Yearly right. would probably be good enough. If, if you're talking about long-term contracts, it would be a yearly thing uh, that we would put them out for, and there would be a change each year. And I think some people would buy the service. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, Gene, uh, we're getting towards the end here now. And I didn't the even get it. Most I, I, know, I know. So I'm going to give you a chance now. So tell me the things that you've been waiting to discuss, because what I want to finish with is just a few quick points to get your take on how the CPI's influence on a couple of different things if we haven't touched on them yet, or if you don't touch on them now when you get into uh, what you wanted to discuss. But Maybe I should go faster than and not show my displays. But but you see, you mentioned hedonics, and I guess I, I, we could have gotten into that, and I guess I should touch on it. I already did touch on it. Uh, the, the, uh, he, he, the, the hedonic uh, idea and uh, why it's called hedonics pleasure. It, it died with this guy named Zvi Grilichs, who called it hedonics, and he never explained why he did call it that. But it basically gets back to my simple tale of two cars. They're identical in both in every way, except uh, I wrote this for the older folks at Barron's and for myself as well, just to simplify it because because it gets in because it can sometimes get complicated with computers. Is that is that one car has power steering and power brakes, and the other car doesn't? And so how do you how do you price them? Well, hedonics, how do you record that in the consumer price index? If they both cost the same, 
if they both if they, if they both cost the same, does that mean that that prices have gone down or up? Well, actually, that's an incorrect statement because what what does happen all the time when a new improved version of a good is is brought out is that if it scores, if it actually gets a, a clientele, a, people to buy it, then what will happen is that the car without the uh, the power brakes and power steering that's still on the market, let's say for the sake of making it easy, that's still being manufactured, it will immediately go to a discount. Uh, it will immediately sell for less than it used to because it's being because it's actually being uh, competed because its competition is the uh, the one with power steering and power brakes. And the Adonic method is a strictly empirical method to try to gauge uh, what what those what the value of those extra items are to consumers in terms of what they're willing to pay. And so my my point is that when we back up. Uh, we, we, we should grant that we have to make some accommodation for the fact that the two cars are different. They're somewhat different items. And we have to incorporate that. And when, when we find that goods are being improved all the time, then, then we have to recognize that we have to deal with that problem. And people who criticize hedonics apparently have not read up on it. They don't realize that if a new, if a new item is brought out for a personal computer or for a car or for a smartphone and it doesn't and it bombs on the market, the hedonics will give it a bomb. The hedonics is an empirical method. It's dependent on information, on price information about the old versions and the good versions and the new versions. And, and it will only record uh, a, 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 uh, an improvement if indeed the market shows that you and I want to buy, want to pay less for the car without the power steering and power brakes. If, if nobody cared about the power steering and power brakes, no, then, then it would not have registered. So what I'm saying is, is that it's a useful method. And how does it price the quality improvement? As I say, uh, based on empirical behavior of consumers. To get now back to my smartphone example, when the smartphones came out, then, then what happened was that the old phones, the old cell phones, plummeted in price because they were, they, they were, they were still being sold, they were still being marketed, and they plummeted in price. Uh, because be, 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 now there was a niche market for them. So a lot of, there are people, there's always, see this, this gets back of course to the fact that the consumer price index or any price index is just a generalization about most people's behavior. Uh, what happened was that the cell phones, that those, those cell phones plummeted in price and people were then only buying the smartphone, even though it was more expensive because it, it had so many more items. So it's only the thing, a point I want to emphasize is that this is an empirical technique. It will not score an improvement unless there is tangible evidence that consumers are paying less for the old one and, and willing to pay a premium for the new one. So that that is a measure of their utility. So again, I'm only, I, you know, this, is, this goes way back. The, that, that's all the Adonic method is. And what we have to recognize is that people are stuck on the idea that you should just choose, do all this creativity. What are you up to? Just choose a basket of goods and track it. Well, that's not what the market does. The, the, the market is constantly introducing improvements. And that was happening with the personal computer. Personal computer was introducing new items and people were paying for it, but, but the only what they paid for. Now, indeed, I think that there is to some degree a, a, a resort on the part of 
of the Bureau of Labor Statistics, since they too are limited, they don't always have the right data, I think that to some degree they do make a mistake by, by going the other route, by, by saying that the cost of the improvement, a cost-based analysis, that the cost of the power steering of power brakes is now going to be uh, in our new measure. What it costs is the value to consumers. That's not how Adonics works. Adonics only values it in terms of actual consumer purchases. But there are other methods that might make a mistake in that regard. But in any case, the Adonics does not. And again, all I want to establish is that technological improvements have got to be dealt with if you're going to have any kind of price index. Uh, and 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 then the method of hedonics to the if you have the data is a good one. There was, it was probably it probably would have been uh, if you actually think of a smartphone because the smartphone was not just the same damn car with the, with the with the with the power steering power brakes. It was like so many other things that 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 there's almost like no satisfactory way to do it. But but they did it. The Bureau of Labor Statistics did it in what was basically almost the worst possible way. They basically registered no improvement. So that's what, that's hedonics. But I want to get into just one final point and just uh, maybe just address it in a summary fashion, because I, although I did prepare slides into, in order to explain it. Um, this is perhaps the most difficult concept, uh, but and it has to do with substitution. In the case of the CPI, versus the personal consumption expenditure deflator. It has to do with something called chaining, chain weighting, chaining. Now, I want to ask you, uh, John, you're my, you're my student here. You got limes and you got lemons. Um, now, uh, the, uh, John, come on, pay attention. The John, limes and lemons, okay. Now, you got limes and lemons and I put a lime or a lemon in my, in my vodka tonic every night. And uh, so the point is that those are conceived of as, as close substitutes. And, uh, and if, and, and it was found that, uh, that if, and of course there are many other kinds, you know, there's, ne there's nectarines and peaches, uh, easy examples. It was found that if the price of the limes went up in relation to the lemons, then people would start just buying the lemons and not the limes. So, so there, and vice versa. You know, if the limes go, become cheaper, they'll buy limes. So they'll be moved. In fact, there'll be a sort of disproportionate movement into the cheaper item. Uh, and but partly that's old people doing that. So therefore, my point as far as that goes is that would you recognize that uh, uh, that that there that the idea that that you look at goods that are sort of relative substitutes for each other, and that and that if consumers switch from one to the other, you sort of have to reweight. You can't, if, 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 if the lemons go up in price in relation to the limes, and then if you register, you simply register the full brunt of the increase in lemon purchases, when the purchase of lemons has collapsed and they're buying limes, then, then uh, you probably want to be aware of that and, and recognize that they're substitutes and incorporate that. Right? As far as that goes, that brings to, you to answer your question, lemons, I would the lime is a lemon's riddle, John. Well, well, to answer your question, I would say it would probably be wrong to record the price, the net price increase um, of that, uh, the, the change in dynamic because of the 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 behavior change of the consumer yeah, yeah. because they've made that substitution and as a result they haven't felt the price increase. But I think there's also an, an interesting investigation here, yeah. and this is probably far too broad to interrupt our, our discussion well, here, but it does speak to the effect of price changes yeah. and all the different variables that influence them, and that is yeah. how much do economic incentives drive preferences? And so in this example, uh, the economic incentive of, let's say, the lemons uh, being more expensive than the limes have driven people to the limes. And I think you would 
you we probably see that across the board in complex economies and societies where the you know that's why i think people focus so much on the different central bank interventions and other economic um, activity that does uh, or, or and we focus on the effects of it because we realize how much it does change our incentives and change our preferences because as you say you know for example this is by no means um, exclusive, but why, you know, fast food, if there was an increase in fast food, is it just because McDonald's is, has a tastier burger? Well, no, that may very well be the case, but it may also be the case that, you know, if, if I've got uh, $10 for my food for the week and a steak is $10 and a McDonald's burger is two, then I'm going to eat the McDonald's burger out of economic reality and, and, and the economic incentives that are inherent in that, in that trade or that economic calculus. So okay, now uh, you're playing into my hands, John. You're playing into my hands. So because I, I put put you the first one. So you're into, so you're a very smart student, but you're going to get an A on this one, John, because in a way you're anticipating my point. See, what I'm really saying is that surprisingly, this I I I threw out. I I gave an example. I sent out an example of beef and chicken, but yeah. but it applies uh, and applies to almost everything. Uh, this is the way the chain waiting works. That, that the, the personal consumption expenditures deflator does it, and just and the PC and the CPI also does it for limes and lemons. It, this is what it does. It, it it splits the difference. Maybe you can. May, I think this will be reasonably clear. I threw out an example in which you have chicken, beef, and wine in your in your basket. That's it. Chicken, beef, and wine. And then I said, beef doubles in price. Beef doubles in price. And uh, and so. How do you measure the impact of the doubling in price? See, you were, you were touching on something that's important, John. You were saying, indeed, that, that what about those people are being, are being priced out of the market because they, they can't afford the beef anymore? You know, how about them? You know, let's take that into account, the loss of their utility. So what, what, the, uh, what the chaining does is it splits the difference in this way. How does it split the difference? It says that. What we're going to do is, first of all, look at how much beef, chicken, and wine were they buying before the doubling in price of beef, and how much beef, chicken, and wine were they buying afterwards. So what we know is that they're going to buy, on average, they, of course, being there, they're going to buy more chicken and less beef. And so in order to, in order, they, I said, they have the same $100 to spend, same limited income. So, they, so, in order, so they're going to substitute chicken for beef. There'll be some beef, but it doubled in price. And so what then, what the chaining says is that uh, going forward, we want to take into account the fact that less beef is being purchased. But we also want to reflect the cataclysm, the, the catastrophe for people like beef who can no longer afford it. And how do we do that? We're going to take the price increase in terms of the first period weights and record it. In other words, we're going to say in the second period, we want to know how much would they have to spend? How much, how much of an increase in price would they have to incur if they kept the same beef chicken allocations, the same? Mm-hmm. And in the calculation I threw out, because I had an extreme example, I showed that, that the doubling of the price of beef would have brought a 63% increase in prices. And that's sort of like the way in which the standard idea has it, which is that you keep the rates fixed. What are you for touching around for? They bought so much beef, so much chicken, and now we want to know how much extra is going to cost when they have the same allocations. But they 
but but they did substitute chicken for beef. And going forward, they're consuming less beef. And to some degree, those who could afford it do regard a certain amount of extra chicken as a trade off. They're maximizing the utility. So you may not be satisfied by this, but we record that 63% increase. And then we work backward with period two weights. And we say, well, suppose they had period two weights, how much of an increase? They're buying less beef. Period two weights are going to apply for both period one and the current period. If you understand, they're now buying less beef and more chicken, but we want to see what would be the price increase if we just applied period two weights throughout retroactively and saw the increase in prices. So I got a 16% increase in price. Based upon the new weights, there's a 16% increase in price. Based upon the old weights, there's a 63% increase in price. And, and, and also, are we going to continue to assume that, that, that they have so much beef in, the, in, in, in their, in their, uh, in their uh, allotment going forward when they're obviously eating a lot less beef? But so what the chain weighting does is it takes the 16% and the 63%, and it does what is called a geometric mean. You probably know what that is, but it's basically an average. It takes the average of the 63% and the, and the 16%, and I got a result of 34%. In other words, it will register it. it. It will indeed, going back to your point, the fact that people can't afford the limes uh, or can't afford the lemons, as the case may be, is hurting. So we want to give a, a, we want to do a period one uh, measure of that and keep the allocations constant so that we get the full brunt. That was the 63% increase I got. But then we want to see, well, according to the new weights, what what is the price increase? Well, it's sixteen percent from period, and we take an average and we get over thirty percent. So, what I'm saying then is that is that I believe that this is the real touchy point, and in a way, it touches upon an Austrian view. Now, let me use another interesting example. Let's just talk about a Caribbean vacation or a vacation in uh, in uh, you know where you like to go. Uh, 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 what do you like? Uh, yeah. So the point is, if one if one vacation rises in price, then then there might be a movement toward the other vacation. But we're gonna we're gonna get the full brunt by period one weights by by persecuting the uh, prices with that full brunt with period one weights. But then people are going to bally. There's some elasticity. They're not so loyal to it. Uh, and so, they, they, so and so what are we really talking about? What is the nature of our commodity? Is this a Caribbean vacation or a Bali vacation, or is it just a trip to a warm climate. Uh, but, but then speaking at the other side, we're talking about the price and elasticity of demand. The price of gasoline, the, there's, there's practically no, the only, the only substitution is that, that you're gonna buy less of it. If, if the price of gasoline goes up, the price of oil generally, the price of fuel, then only in the very long term can there be adaptations. There, the period one weights and the period two weights will be very similar. But, but, but the point is that for many goods, for many goods, it's really just having a good meal. And so, uh, or in the case of the vacations, it's really just having a vacation. So there is, in many people's minds, almost everything is a lime versus a lemon. I don't know if you understand my point. My point is that, that, that in a way, this whole approach of chain weighting, which splits the difference, which says, let's take the full brunt of, of the price increase in terms of fixed weights, then work, then work with period two weights and work backward and, and, and take that lower price increase and then do an average, is probably the best compromise we can come across. And, and Ron Paul misunderstood it. He didn't realize that that's the way it works. That is the way it works. 
Right. So, so you're saying it's, it's misguided to just take the price differential and say that your cost of living based on the existing preferences has gone up because it doesn't take into account the adaptation you may make based on the differential in prices? Or, or I, see, I would say that in a way, the, the idea of the lime versus the lemon or the peach versus the, uh, versus the uh, uh, nectarine, uh, where, where we almost regard those as like 98% perfect substitutes for each other, and mm-hmm. 2% see a difference, is that, and in that case, we have an extreme where, where, the, where the, the, the purchase of lemons is really going to plummet and, and the purchase of limes is an increase. Then I then then in terms of the empirical data, if it's the chicken and the and the and the and the beef, or it's the one vacation versus another, we have imperfect substitutability, and that will pick up. And in a way, then the the term substitutability is the key operator. How will people maximize their utility? And then in addition, uh, what we're really ultimately talking about is the real question of how you define. The subjectivity, we Austrians believe in subjective value. How do you define the subjectivity of what is being purchased? We, we, we have a broad array of things we can do on our vacation. We value some of them more than others. And, but the idea that, that we do a fixed weight for the Caribbean vacation, and then when the Caribbean vacation becomes more expensive, we assume everybody's still going to the Caribbean and not choosing an alternative. That right. seems to be unrealistic. And... Bear in mind, however, that the chaining insists on incorporating into the calculation the full fixed weight brunt, but then averaging up it with a retrospective brunt and taking an average. So that's why it actually is a fairly ingenious method for splitting the difference, albeit this is all an art and not a science. But it's Understood. Not, yeah, yeah. Understood. I understand what you're saying. And it makes me wonder while you're saying that in the type of yeah. economy monetary and financial system in which we find ourselves, which there is a high degree of centralized intervention through the creation and flows of money, a la central banks and the government. Does that create a scenario in which it's more likely that we substitute ourselves into a lower quality of life? Do you know what I, because the, the, the disrupt, the, the distortion of prices that, that method of monetary policy creates, does it not preference or does it not prefer rather or have a preference for constantly looking for the cheaper to produce and consume goods? And will we find ourselves? And I think I'm going to steel man my own argument here or, or, you know, the the technological uh, innovation and deflation argument is kind of in the background mitigating this, but will be, you know, will, we substitute ourselves into a lower quality of life because of the increased pressure that the type of monetary policy and the money in which we use has on forcing us to find cheaper and cheaper substitutes for the things that we want. See, I have to think about that, John. I'm I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic. I I guess I would say first, the, 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 the desire to do more with less, the entrepreneurial desire to discount the next will always be there. Yeah. That's entrepreneurship. That's right. That's Bezos. That's Henry Ford and that make it cheaper, cheaper. You you make, you, you become a billionaire by most of the time, Bloomberg aside, but by, by, by selling something that the masses want to buy. So that's going to be there. And, and so prices are going to be falling. And I mean, of course, 
in the example that I just cited, I guess I would say, I would have to say, well, the, the Caribbean vacation fell by 10%, but the Bali vacation came, fell by 30%. I would be talking probably in the reverse direction. And, then, and people are always looking for the cheaper alternative. So therefore, I think that's never going to stop. And I think I've obviously planned the, the, the ways in which uh, the uh, centrally planned economy, as you call it, and I would call it that as well, slows things down, makes, makes cheaper prices more difficult. Incomes are generally rising, but I guess I get I guess I would get back to your point and say that to the to the extent that we have inequality, then then it means that, that those of us who earn a good income benefit much more from this than than those of us who earn less. But I'm not sure then I'm I'm not sure about what you're getting out of the idea that the inflationary economy necessarily means that, I mean, it's a good thing if people are looking for cheaper ways of producing the same thing. It's a good thing if people are looking for uh, ways to produce better versions of the same thing. So all of that's good. So Yeah, I, I, I think maybe um, one potential answer to my own question <laughs> is that, you know, this substitute, this, uh, this uh, behavior that causes people to substitute is just, you know, a natural economic calculus that doesn't matter what bracket you're in, you're going to do. It's a, it, you know, it's a matter of preference and economic reality that you find yourself in. I guess my question was, was simply that uh, the inequality that we referenced before, the disparity in wealth, the economic and capital destruction to the extent that it occurs in a centrally planned economy as we have around the world through the central banks, um, will that be creating, I, I guess what I'm saying is, Will that be creating more and more poverty? And as a result of that, that natural substitutive behavior that we just referenced is just going to lead people to demanding cheaper, lower quality uh, substitutes kind of uh, uh, until because that's their, 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 the kind of economic imperative because they're less wealthy. Uh, until we get to a point where um, the quality of goods and services broadly uh, is of a lower quality. Oh, uh, articulated that somewhat poorly, uh, but I, I think you know what I mean. Now I see what you're getting at. That at least is a consistent statement. And certainly, yeah. certainly if, you're, if you're talking about uh, an economy that's becoming less productive and poorer, then, then clearly the, the, you and I are entrepreneurs, then we've got this massive market of people who don't have a whole lot of money and how are we going to sell something to them? We'd like to make, there's a lot of them. We can make right. a fortune if we sell something to them that they want. And I guess that's why you were latching on, on McDonald's. And, uh, you know, indeed, obviously McDonald's meant a family of limited means could go out for dinner on a Sunday evening. And I think mm -hmm. it was a good thing, you know, and, and it was a reasonably nourishing meal and, uh, and so on. And so I think it's good, but, uh, but you're saying, well, okay, how, but I, I guess, you're absolutely right. It's consistent with your assumption that, that if, if the central bank is going to make us poor, I, I, I believe that my own framework is to say that a free market should be doubling in output every 10 years. It should be increasing 7% a year. We have so many things that hobble it, however, the central bank among them. I do think that people are going to become better off over the next 10 years. I do think that the, that the, the basic movement toward freer markets that's occurred over the last 20, 30 years in China and elsewhere is going to continue. And we will see um, uh, increased prosperity in most areas of the world. However, it will be far less than could be achieved if 
uh, if we had free markets. And I think that then my framework is to start with 7% growth a year, doubling every 10 years, and to work down from that and to recognize that the central bank and other policies keep us at 2% a year uh, at five points of loss every year. So that's bad, but I do think of that as improvement. Uh, even per capita improvement as well. And so uh, I think that, that we will see uh, better times over the next 10 years, although, again, I, I do see the potential for a fiscal crisis 10 to 15 years out. So if your framework is increased poverty, then I see your argument. But if you accept my pro, uh, framework, which is increased prosperity, however, far, far less than could be achieved if we had a free market. And I blame, of course, the central bank for much of that below par uh, performance, then I have a somewhat different perspective. Then uh, people will be better off and there will be uh, a desire to sell them uh, you know, more luxury goods. Um, although, of course, there will still be plenty of desire to sell them almost everything possible. Yeah, fair enough. All right, Gene, I think we're, we're getting to the end here. There's one thing uh, I wanted to ask you, and then, and then the floor is yours oh, with what you want to go on with. But uh, what do you see as the relationship between the CPI calculation and income tax brackets oh. for individuals. Well, that, well, that's right. That's another. That's another one that got uh, indexed. Uh, I think it was in the early '80s. I think it was where brackets got indexed to, I guess, a version of CPI. Although, I mean, it. I mean, other first of all, first of all other forms of taxation are not indexed by capital gains. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but it definitely, by the way, it definitely hobbled government to some extent. I don't know the full politics of how that happened, uh, that, this, that, uh, that income tax was, but, but it was obviously pleasing to the voters. Uh, the, the point is that it, it, the indexing of brackets by the CPI, uh, I, I guess I, actually it's interesting, the CPI overstating inflation, then, uh, the, 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 then it does overstate the inde indexing, but the, the fact is that that people, but because of, of, of the money supply increase, uh, nominal incomes rise even faster, and therefore the, the 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 bracket indexing is only partially successful. You still suffer. Most of us who have rising incomes or have good years in terms of still suffer bracket creep, anyway. And aside from that, of course, if you make money from other sources. Uh, then you pay uh, higher inflation. So indeed, the, the, the indexing is partially helpful, but we still suffer some bracket creep. I, I don't know if that responds to the... Well, I guess, and you know, th this whole conversation kind of was, was uh, well, you, you've been making the case the entire time that the CPI is kind of net overstated, right? Oh, plus 1% a year. Right. And so if, when I relate that to income tax brackets, presumably... Uh, if the CPI was understated, that would be more detrimental because because you're you would fall you you would you'd eventually creep up into another category, but the real inflation uh, would be less than what's being indexed, and as a result, you, maybe you creep up faster to another bracket than you otherwise should, right? Well, I'm sorry, I didn't let come follow the last part. So so let me let me rephrase it. So if if the CPI is um, is two percent, yeah. But real inflation is four percent. Okay. Uh, you are gonna your oh, yeah, 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 yeah. bracket creep is gonna be indexed to the two percent, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so you would you would be kind of penalized yeah. there because you may enter a higher bracket based on a the CPI stated inflation versus the real inflation. Yeah. Well, well, yes, well, exactly. But what I'm saying is that even so, uh, 
what happens is that nominal incomes rise faster and that uh, all I, you, what you said is right as far as it went, but even though the CPI overstates inflation and even though the brackets are indexed to the CPI, nominal incomes rise even faster. So while the indexing does limit the bracket keep creep, there is still bracket creep happening because the nominal incomes still rise and so the brackets you still rise in the bracket and then have to suffer because of progressive income tax rates of course you suffer a higher income tax so it's only partially helpful given the fact that nominal incomes are rising even faster and therefore you push them to a higher bracket so that was my only technical point empirically but you're right about that part of it in terms of your assumptions uh, but again, I, I, what, what, what I just want to emphasize broadly that, uh, as I mentioned before, that when you talk about the motivations of government, there's a, there's a whole cross current of motivations. And, uh, and certainly while the government, would, while of course, obviously you want as much taxes as you can possibly get, the, 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 uh, the, the, the indexing of the brackets, I guess, was a political maneuver that, that still holds. And, but I think that government still benefits from the fact that, that, the, that the brackets are uh, that um, the uh, that the, that there is still bracket creep, and that there might there might be some greater push to push to, to modify the CPI. It doesn't seem as though it's very popular today. There was, as I say, in the mid '90s because of the fear about Social Security. But what's interesting and maybe a little bit tragic is that they're not trying to uh, they're not trying to do that right now. Uh, to uh, and I guess and that was the Clinton administration, interestingly, a Democratic administration that 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 provoked a lot of howls that they were they were de they were they were declaring war on Social Security by by trying to modify the CPI, which to some extent they succeeded in doing. But so again, I'm only trying to say that uh, getting back to your broader question, that when we look at what the government does, probably would it play the place the greatest weight on bureaucratic inertia and on kicking the can down the road. Uh, nobody cares that much. They aren't that uh, that uh, demonic or monolithic in this regard. They still have a price index that over overstates inflation. Yeah. Right. What else you got for me, Gene? That's it, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could go into some other things about some other writers. I'm looking at the house prices and rents. If you really want to talk about crazy nightmare what do you do with housing in the cpi you know when two-thirds of the, of the of households own their own oh 64 percent 65 percent nearly two-thirds owns their own home and about one-third rents and how do you do that but of course, that's just an interesting that, that that's not necessarily i got to do with my hobby horse they used to track mortgage interest rates that people paid that was a crazy time that that they would look at a house and they would and then they, they would just look at the average cost of the mortgages and that was the cost of housing of living in a house that you owned rather crazy stuff but i think that probably our listeners are rather exhausted you and i have gotten, <laughs> you, you and I have gotten some very good points across uh, yeah. but again I, I guess i want to emphasize that i get let me finish on a murray rothbard note murray rothbard in man economy and state a book that changed my life my mind great book uh, he invaded against price indexes and i just reread the passage and he he threw out examples which are a hat and other stuff i i oh you know actually let me tell you another story the the the, the consumer price index works on consumer 
surveys and people people have a very they know what they pay on food but they don't know what they pay for umbrellas or how often they buy them so that that information is very scanty whereas the personal consumption expenditure deflator uh, works with uh, works with actual store purchases and so they have much better weights because they because the store purchase is a much better example about how frequently people buy umbrellas and other chancy items so so but 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 Rothbard tried to try to dump completely on the idea of price index by throwing out the price of a hat, the price of an umbrella, stuff that people don't even buy that often, rather than talking about the staples that people buy all the time. And then mm -hmm. he said, oh, this is, how can you do this? It's how can you weight them? How do we even know what's going on? And so it was kind of the worst moment for Rothbard because he wasn't even choosing a very realistic example, even though he was a great economist. But then I do find that if you listen to some of Rothbard's lectures on economic history, he deals with nominal numbers. And the next thing you know, he's using a price index to deflate them. Uh, and in order to make them real, realistic. So that was um, the great Murray Rothbard's hypocritical moment. So right. again, I want to say to my Austrian friends that, uh, that uh, price indexes are an art and not a science. They're only an approximation. Everything I've said is even, uh, uh, there are different ways of, of, of looking at it. Two smart people could divide price indexes that would be a little bit different. How do you, what do you do with housing when people own their own homes? All, all kinds of problems uh, uh, that arise, but there are methods that have been developed that are pretty smart, uh, that does understate inflation, uh, but, but it's still uh, valid to recognize that almost everything John Vallis said uh, in the last two and a half hours is nonetheless true. Wow, Gene, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not used to this level of, uh, you know, uh, this praise. I'm not used to this at all. Well, okay, exactly, John. <laughs> I knew I'd flew you back. All right, well, let me let me well, hit you with a question. You know, that most part didn't disagree with me about the CPI, John. So I don't you, you, what you brought. Well, you're the expert on the CPI. Well, That's what I got you say, here. You know, yeah, fair enough, John. But you could say I don't buy it. You goddamn expert. This doesn't. I thought you felt well, the most. Let me. Let me condense all that argument and into the into the cherry on the top here. So let's we have price inflation represented in the CPI. We have monetary inflation that we can um, we can look at the monetary base, the increase in the money supply to get an idea of. We're in a in a for sound money advocates for the Bitcoiners who look at these metrics to determine uh, or to get a sense for the importance of sound money in society at, you know, potentially, um, yeah, for, for the, the importance of sound money in society. What should we be looking at uh, to, to uh, what metric, what kind of synthesis of those two things should we be looking at to determine the importance of sound money in a society? Well, I guess it gets back to my point that, if I follow you correctly, that that if we that if Bitcoiners who believe in a flat, stable money supply, neither increasing or decreasing, neither inflation of money supply or deflation, then then bottom line we really would be looking at a five percent decline in prices every year, approximately, and so that's our baseline, and that and that the inflation really is the difference between that five percent decline and what would be legitimately recorded. I think it's not been 2%, it's been about 1.5%, a little over 1% inflation. So but, so we, we, we should recognize that inflation has been happening and it's not been 1%, it's been, according to my arithmetic, 
We should recognize that. And we should recognize uh, that, uh, that uh, it's, uh, it's not uh, the sort of thing we want, especially for the lower half of the population. Uh, but, uh, and then we should also, okay, I think, uh, uh, recognize that the free market has been behaving better to the, we have more of a free market, I think, than maybe you would acknowledge. Uh, we have, we've had some good developments over the last 20, 25 years of discounting, global competition, employment of cheap labor, that's been causing that 5% decline, and recognize then that if we apply a proper price index, we have seen a reasonable amount of economic progress on all levels. We haven't had, the centralized economy, I guess, I guess maybe this is, this is where the cutting edge lies for, with my Austrian friends. The centralized crony capitalist economy is still a huge drag. It still meant that we could have 7% growth and instead we've had 2% growth and that, and that has made an extraordinary difference, but we still have had growth. We still have had prosperity. And so we might want to hold on to those facts. Noted. Let me revise my initial oh, question. Oh, oh, well. Um, but all that is, you know, the, thank you for explaining that. But let me revise this. A, a lot of us think whether, you know, perhaps erroneously so, but a lot of us think that the level of intervention by central banks, by the Fed, by governments around the world today will inevitably lead to hyperinflation. Oh, that's, yeah. that's certainly a, a possible outcome. Yeah. So what I, what I guess the whole point of this discussion, and I, I'll just get you to confirm this, is you believe that the CPI is a reliable metric for us to be looking at to assess the level of inflation in an economy. So basically what, what you've said is that we get, you know, about minus 5% def, um, deflation as a result of technological advancements. And then we were brought up to, in your opinion, 1% uh, via, you know, central government, central bank intervention. If, if we define hyperinflation as you know, 10, 20, 30, 100% inflation, you think that that will be represented in the CPI and we can, we can track the CPI and continue to keep an eye on the CPI to get a sense for what inflation is really doing. Well, I would say, by the way, just a small point, I would say it's not a huge stretch to look at the personal consumption expenditures deflator, the PCE, which, which is more accurate. I think the PCE is a little, it, is, it overstates inflation by about four tenths. The PC, personal consumption expenditures deflator, used by the, uh, by the Bureau of Economic Analysis mm -hmm. to deflate consumer spending. They don't use the CPI. They use the PCE. The PCE uh, uses inputs from from the uh, from this from the CPI, but it, it does the full substitution that I mentioned. Uh, but it, it runs into problems with technology. But then, getting back to your question, in the 1970s. Uh, in early 80s, when we did have double-digit inflation, I know that because both the PCE and the CPI were showing it. The PCE, if we have a return to double-digit inflation, the PCE, personal consumption expenditures deflator, PCE, will be shown. And that, by the way, is what the Federal Reserve mentions a good part of the time. That's their preferred measure. So you might as well look at it anyway. It is available on, just look, it's, it's posted on the Bureau of Economic, Economic Analysis website. Write me anytime, John, and I can update you on. I get Haver data, simple enough. Uh, and I guess, it, I guess it's not carried in the press that much. They, maybe they, they report on the CPI more. But the PC is around. It's available in the age of the internet. But getting back to your question, I again, stress that my easy scenario, easy in the sense that it's an easy forecast, is that the, 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 it look, there's a combination of factors that I believe are going to start 
pushing us toward double-digit inflation, which I went over before, having to do with the busting of the budget, the, the uh, 10, 12 years out, uh, out, out. And that, of course, is very much a central bank-created phenomenon because, there, because there's so much debt being bought by the central bank, which, and, and then that could be, and that indeed is a federal government central bank collusion, that, that is expanding the, the, uh, the, uh, the size of government, and that because the central bank will then be called into trying to bail out the federal government, uh, there, that will sow the seeds for a, a double-digit inflation. And uh, that will, uh, of course, also be a part and parcel of the, the other factors that I mentioned being played out, the cheap labor uh, from global competition, cheap labor in China, from other areas, mostly being tapped out. And then on top of that, we will get back to a point where we'll have a reasonably tight labor market. So I think that within 10, 15 years, we are going to see uh, 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 what you mentioned, double-digit inflation, measured measured by the PCE or CPI. It was measured in the 1970s. And then we had an interesting history there. We did indeed have a major recession that, that broke the back of the inflation. Exactly how it will play out, it will play out differently, but I do see an opportunity for Bitcoin. So indeed, um, I'm, I'm saying that others might be correct in saying that it's gonna happen sooner rather than later. I'm just saying that, that the forces that will lead us in that direction are almost inevitable uh, toward, toward double-digit inflation that I mentioned having to do with the, with, with, with the way in which the deficit and the budget uh, of the federal government are rising. So indeed, you and I are on the same page, maybe we have a different scenario, but the causes and the underlying factors are there. I, I dread it. I, I don't like, I'm not looking forward to it. And the only silver lining that I like to latch upon is that it could be an opportunity for Bitcoin uh, to become the money of choice. Uh, uh, and and let, let me ask you this question, which I asked your, your friend, Lawrence White. And uh, of course, you're free not to answer for privacy reasons, but for- I got a secret from you, John. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, seeing, you know, having- Seeing things the way that you do, uh, as you, as you just articulated, yeah. and seeing it, you know the the door open a jar for something like Bitcoin, do you have a position in Bitcoin? I should. I'm embarrassed to say that. I, I did own some Bitcoin. I'm going to get around to it. I, I want. I want. I want to go with my. I, I, you, you're. I mean, I just have been busy, and I have. Gene, Gene, Gene. Okay. No. Look. You know. Let's look. This is my shame. You, you've, you've thoroughly embarrassed me among in front of your million <laughs> listeners, John. But no, indeed. Uh, uh, no, as I say, not as I do. Uh, the point. The, the the basic the basic idea, I think, for conservative people like me. Look, I am 75, John. That's my excuse. Although I. <laughs> I do, expect, I do expect to live till 100, and so I'm, I'm obviously going to be seeing that along with you, and so mm -hmm. I should be owning some Bitcoin. But, but it's, I, I, I wanted to do it through my broker, and then I found – I'm a Morgan Stanley broker, and I found they don't do Bitcoin, so I've got to get instruction in doing – what I want to do is, is do an income averaging with Bitcoin, what I would suggest any conservative person do. Uh, allocate a certain amount of money in proportion to your income and proportion mm -hmm. to your broad savings, not all of it. Own stocks yeah. and bonds, just as I do. But 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 do a monthly purchase of Bitcoin, which would be a, just sort of income averaging, whatever it's a certain like two hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin bought every month, right. 
400 or $500 that you buy every month. I've been planning to do that, John, but I couldn't. Dollar do cost averaging is definitely the way to go in, yeah. a, in a market with this type of volatility yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess we'll uh, but I can send you some resources to make it easier on Eugene. There's lots of good companies out there now that I'm sure would be more than happy to help, especially if, especially if they know uh, old Gene Epstein is looking to get involved. So uh, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, Gene, before we sign off, well, first of all, thank you again for taking so much time to uh, have this discussion with me and uh, in, enlighten me with your knowledge of the CPI inflation and related issues. Uh, any any um, places you want to direct people listening, any of the stuff that you're doing these days, anything like that? Well, I'm, pl I'm planning to come out, well, I'm planning to come out with a discussion of the issue of herd immunity with respect to uh, the, the COVID-19 crisis. I do believe that the, the numbers are more and more indicating that we've achieved herd immunity in the New York area and that uh, that we can reopen the bars, the restaurants, the completely the Broadway shows. And I want to explain it. I find that herd immunity is just barely discussed and uh, and to some degree not even very well understood and i found that epi epidemiology is not such a difficult field you just have to know your numbers and i've been talking closely with with a very skilled and very knowledgeable epidemiologist and learning about how the numbers work uh, we i don't think we have herd immunity in texas but we may be getting there uh, but uh, but uh, certainly uh, there's good all the numbers indicate that it looks like we've achieved it in New York, and for reasons that are fairly clear, we did have a lot of people afflicted. Uh, and then also, by the way, we've achieved herd immunity partly because of cross immunity, which is which is minimized the understanding that the, the research showing that a lot of previous coronavirus flus and other flus have achieved some immunity uh, that's cross immunity that made a number of people immune to the new COVID-19 virus. That aside, uh, I also uh, want to get people interested in the Soul Forum. Our debate on racism has been reissued. Just go into the soulforum.org to hear our debate on racism. In a month, we're going to have a debate on the presidential election. And uh, I hope, of course, that we can return uh, to our physical space, the subculture theater. We, can, we will continue to have our debates. And John, you should come visit us in New York uh, on this uh, I'd like to get to know you personally, and uh, you're a pleasure to talk to, and uh, we should spend some time together. So please come to uh, to the Soul Forum. You should probably take a vacation in New York, John. And, and uh, Well, Gene, once, uh, once things open up again, it's definitely at the very top of my list, and I'd love to come down, speak with you, have a bite to eat, and enjoy some of the, uh, the, the events and debates at the Soho Forum. That would be awesome. It'd be a pleasure, John. Talk to you soon. All right, Gene. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.